0: to a very special, not a cast, podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, usually has a feed dream episode, and usually has a monthly bonus episode for our patrons only, but oh no, not here, or at least not only with me. I am your host, Jeff, better known as Fish,
1: And I'm your host, Emmett, better known as poor
0: Quentin and welcome to our 35th Patreon only and our third annual holiday tradition episode titled Playing with Fire an analysis of the HBO's Game of Thrones's have you heard of that show episode Blackwater in which we analyze the best or at least the most beloved episode of Game of Thrones season 2 episode 9 which is of course Blackwater
1: we thought it only appropriate, folks, since we're going through the Battle of Blackwater in our regular chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast that we talk about this episode of the show. It was a lot of fun for us to revisit it. Of course, everyone loves Blackwater, but if, you know it takes on certain new, new nuances and layers when you come back to it after the end of the show. And also, just as we've continued to age at a, at a frankly unacceptable rate, we really have to slow down this <laughs> aging process of ours.
0: Yeah. What What happened with that? How do How do we get old all of a sudden? That That doesn't make sense. How How is it that Blackwater was released eight years ago and filmed nine years, years. ago? Is that weird to you? It's weird to me.
1: It's yeah. It's preposterous. It's like one of those things where you you know people say, oh, you know, Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks were actually born the same year, and you go, whoa, and you have to reckon <laughs> with the concept of time. Which yeah, I don't I don't like doing that anymore. But. But sometimes you have to, folks. You force us to, truly. Truly you do. If you subscribe to our Patreon, you'll be getting at least one of these episodes a month. If you subscribe for only $5 a month or more. Our intent in doing these special Patreon episodes is to broaden out from our usual chapter-by-chapter focus and talk about some of the topics that interest us more broadly. So here you'll hear character deep dives, backstory analysis, or in this case, a nostalgic look back at a truly great episode of television
0: truly great is the optimal word here and of course this episode if you were listening to it on the release day is going to be out for everyone again this is something we like to do every single year of having a special holiday bonus episode
1: i wanted to start off by asking uh the question what was it like watching this episode for the first time for you and specifically what was it like watching it for the first time as someone who had uh, not yet read the books what was it like coming into this one cold
0: this is That's a great question because I actually remember this episode very, very specifically. Now, um, I am not advocating for this, but in 2012, I did not exactly have an HBO subscription with my cable provider. Mm-hmm. Um, are you picking up what I'm laying down, so to speak? Not at all, sir. I, I can't. I'm Good parts so we'll, we'll just leave it ambiguous like that so that Time Warner doesn't come after us and, and things like that but um I ended up watching the episode about an hour after it it ended so it was around eleven o'clock at night when I finally was able to get access to to said episode, so I was sitting there and I'm like, and I knew this episode was being built up a lot. I I remember specifically remember like the preview from the previous week hinting at something big happening at the black at, at the some sort of battle episode that was going to occur. And I was very excited to see it actually happen and unfold because, of course, we hadn't had a true battle episode in Game of Thrones up until this point. So I really remember this episode. I remember Davos sailing in uh, in the darkness. I remember Stannis on a ship and Tyrion and Shay and Varas and up on the walls. And of course, mm-hmm. I remember the build up to the wildfire explosion really strongly because I was just glued to the mini TV set that I had that I probably fucking had since I was in college. And I was just sitting there like watching, like waiting and anticipating what's going to happen. And then when that single ship sails out, and I'm like, what is happening here? And then all of a sudden wildfire and everything explodes. And I just like was blown back. Literally, you know, I was like Stannis uh, on his ship where he gets, gets blown back by the wildfire explosion. That was me. I was blown back by the awesomeness of what I was experiencing as a visual thing and as a spectacle. But not only a spectacle, because I I think. The thing that I remembered the most, and we're definitely going to talk, both of us are going to talk about this here in this episode, is how ambiguous I felt and yet compelled at the same time. Ambiguous because mm. I didn't know who I wanted to win the battle. I didn't know if I wanted Stannis to win the battle. I mean, I liked Davos. I really didn't like Stannis a whole lot in season two. That's my, that's my guilty admission right here. I know they're <laughs> coming for me with the fire and the pyres now. But I really liked Davos a lot. He was probably my favorite new character introduced in season two. And I really did not like Joffrey. And that opinion remains the same today as it did in two <laughs> But at the same time, I really liked Tyrion. I was basically like a show-only plebeian, as they call them. I don't think I should call them plebs. But I was a show-only plebeian <laughs> who was just uh, really into Tyrion, how witty and awesome he was, and drinking all the time. I'm mm-hmm. like, hey, that's me on screen. That's, that's who I'm looking at right there as a late 20-something person who likes to drink all the time and try and be witty to his friends and... You know, probably just annoying as fuck as I now consider Tyrion to be, both in the show and the books, with also a lot of added details and character wrinkles, which make Tyrion the awesome character that he is. So I remember all of that very specifically. I remember the visuals, I remember the feelings that I had. And then I remember the end of the episode when the National mm. is, is doing the reigns of Casimir. I'm like, this is fucking epic. I love this shit. This is so great. This is awesome. This is the best episode of TV I've ever seen. And then I immediately went upstairs and woke my brother up. It was like midnight at that point in time. i like, dude, <laughs> come here. You got to come with me. And so I literally t- turned the, like to reround the episode, rewound the episode. I started the episode from the beginning and then we watched together around midnight and went to bed around one o'clock in the morning. And he was similarly blown away, although not blown away enough to, to read the books. Actually, that was actually my next step in my, my <laughs> fandom journey because I then, After that, I was like, I really should probably read these books. And I forgot about it for a week. And then the episode 10, Valor Morgulis, aired the next week. I watched that episode. I'm like, I absolutely have to find out what happened to Samuel Tarly. So I'm going to go read these books known as A Song of Ice and Fire. And here we are today on, as we're recording, December 18th, 2020. And we're doing a chapter-by-chapter analysis of A Song of Ice and Fire, one chapter a week. It's a pleasure to be here. But I want to say that a lot of my first steps towards that journey began on a Mm june i want to say it was probably may or june right it had to be june had it on a june night in 2012. and now i turn the question back over to you sir so you're sitting there you were an actual book reader you were you were og as, as i've often said about you and your <laughs> fandom journey you were all about a song of ice and fire or at least we're familiar with it before game of thrones came out what was your reaction to watching blackwater and how did you feel knowing what was about to happen from your journeys through the books previously
1: Well, I've been watching season two with some friends and, uh, you know, as someone who loved the books a lot, I kind of, you know, I... It was kind of seesawing and how much I enjoyed season two after really enjoying season one. There were some parts I thought were really well adapted, especially in King's Landing. And there were some parts that I thought were kind of so-so, some of the stuff with John Bay on the wall and some of the stuff with, with Stannis. I knew why they were cutting certain things, but it felt like, ah, this is this is kind of muddled. This isn't going to have the, quite the payoff. And so I was, I was concerned that maybe the Battle of the Blackwater wasn't going to be quite the perfect epic it, it should be, especially after knowing that in season one they weren't able to film the battles. And this, So watching this episode, this this definitely kind of cemented me as a, as a Game of Thrones watcher for the next few seasons. And looking back, like, this is, you know, really the episode more than any other that kept me going through some dicey episodes in the middle of Game of Thrones. <laughs> like, this is this is why, was to try to kind of recapture this episode and, as, as silly as it sounds, kind of keep faith with the feeling of this episode and, and you know, trying not giving up on the show that had been this good. And, you know, I was definitely comparing it to the books and I definitely had some more kind of nitpicky thoughts in my mind. I remember looking back, but, you know, I was just just definitely kind of... Uh, it was it was so striking to me, me to be able to see Stannis and Tyrion in more detail than the books could ever afford to. And certainly I was still, like, disappointed in, like, you know, the like the burning bridges not being there, because that's something I absolutely loved in the book. But I remember thinking how just uh, coherent and focused it was, and what a great bottle episode it was, because this mm-hmm. was the first big battle episode of the show, but also the first bottle episode. And it was just... Um, I remember feeling like the energy in the room was like i was watching a great movie and, wow. the, and it, was, it was felt like it was a very specific energy so i, I remember that i remember um i remember just like uh, you know even even losing it was, it was the first game of thrones episode where for a little while i forgot about the books entirely which i which i think is, is probably the best compliment <laughs> i can possibly pay it
0: and a, yeah. um yeah
1: I, I definitely i kind of i kind of recap rekindle a little bit of that feeling going back
0: so were you like at the point in in your where you were like, I don't know if I'm gonna continue forward with with Game of Thrones It's not quite staying like faithful to the books or were you more like I'm gonna keep watching this, but I'm not going to be invested as I watch this this show
1: the latter I was like I was you know, like I was like I like this show I'm so I was just thinking I was like, well, I'm so glad that this show this book exists in show form mm. isn't that great Is't that great that more people are watching And I was thinking about that purely in that form more than like this is one of my favorite shows on its hmm. own, and Blackwater is where the shift happened. I was like, okay, I like this show on its own terms, and that feeling lasted all the way through season three and mostly through season four. <laughs> um, yeah, season five was a little rockier, but yeah, this is uh, for for I think for book I think from a book reader's perspective or someone who's already into the books, this is where Game of Thrones r- really fully came into its own. I think there's plenty of sh- stuff they did in season one that belongs to them and their own, but this is. This, this is impressive on a way, and I don't think I, I don't think I knew that George had written it actually at the time. Hmm. That probably would have added a layer to that first time experience if I had known that, but I'm pretty sure I didn't know that.
0: That's a that yeah that's that's fascinating. I, I think I I do remember like the the title credit seeing that George R. Martin wrote the episode even back in 2012. Somehow I have that that memory, but I didn't put it together that George R. Martin was the the author of A Song of Ice and Fire. But, sure. You know because I hadn't read A Song of Ice and Fire. I had no idea. I mean, I knew what A Song of Ice uh-huh. and Fire was. It's the books that inspired Game of Thrones, as as we'll talk about here in a little bit. But uh, no, that's that's really that's really interesting. And and I, I would love to get more of your takes about how. I mean, we could do another episode of this someday down the road about how. How you how this how this episode propelled you forward to season three and season four and what were the points in season four and beyond where you're like I'm starting to like wane a little bit in, in my own my own Phantom journey because I I definitely season five for me was 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 that in a lot of ways but again at that yeah. point it was so different and and for you it was different as well because you were now you, by two, 2015 you and I were both in our separate capacities we were both invested in, in the Song of Ice and Fire community writing about it sure and, that's true different things which of course influences how we perceive the these these types of things uh, like game of thrones for instance i i, I have to wonder this i, I mean I, this is not one of our icebreaker questions but something i i muse about myself if i had never mm-hmm. gotten into a song of ice and fire and then after that immediately jumped right into the a song of ice and fire community what would have been my impressions of game of thrones a- after that would i have been content or really excited or thought it was awesome the whole way through I don't know. I honestly don't know. It's, it's a road never taken, obviously, because we're here again doing the Not A Cast podcast almost towards the end of A Clash of Kings and covering this episode on Blackwater. But it's, uh, yeah, it's something I wonder about sometimes.
1: Yeah, and that's what looking back on an episode like this makes clear is that you never actually, there is no such thing as a stable vantage point from Hmm. which to view a book or a television show because you're constantly changing, even as the thing itself is changing. Yeah. And yeah, your, your relationship to it, I think you make an excellent point that you're, you know, not even in like a corrupt way, but just your relationship to the show inherently changes once you're invested in the fandom and relating it to the books more. And that, you know, there's, and there's, and there's just no way to get outside that. Like it's impossible to go back and look at season five in a platonic state. you just have to kind of, uh, run with your own (laughs) limitations as best as you possibly can, which I think is interesting. And I think, um. I think going back kind of kind of awakens those critical faculties, and I, I enjoy going through that process with you, sir. And I like exploring that kind of stuff with you.
0: Look at yeah. us, like warming each other's hearts on this cold, almost Christmas night here <laughs> in December. So perfect when way snow to finally
1: like, showed up. It's true.
0: It did on the East Coast. Yeah, for both of us. So we didn't get a lot. It melted mm-hmm. pretty quickly. I think you got a little bit more. Yeah, not like, much, but just you know. But it it's gets, nice. Girls, got girls, girls got to make snow angels. It was it was beautiful outside. So that's yeah, cute. Anyways, enough with the icebreaker, and with the ice, and the snow, and the Christmas spirit, and let's get on to the synopsis of Game of Thrones Season nine, season 2, Episode 9, Blackwater. Hi, Captain Sir Devo Seaworth. C- wait, wait a, wait a fucking second. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, I guess they did kind of change that from the books. But wait, Imri is actually in this episode, too. Ah, okay, I'm over it. I promise. Anyways, we didn't make it past. I didn't even make it past the first few words. Okay. Hi, Captain Sir Devo Seaworth looks out over the waters and his ship before ascending up to his top deck to look behind him to see the rest of the Baratheon fleet behind sailing. Then we're on over to Stannis Baratheon and a zoom-in shot of him standing on his own top deck, looking half-annoyed, half-smug in that way that only Stephen Delane could do as Stannis Baratheon. I love that, that look that, that Stannis does. Then it's down below decks to Baratheon soldiers looking scared and seasick. One dude gets up and pukes into a to- into a bucket, overflowing with vomit left over from when Sir Frank B., the King's Justice, learned that the Ohio State-Michigan game was canceled. Then we're back over to Davos, who heads over to his son Mathos to chat about some dude stuff. Like how the tide's against them, but they have the wind. Mathos says that Davos is coming home. But Davos knows this hasn't been his home for many years. Besides, he was always running from the royal fleet. Now he's coming right at them. But only if the gods are good. And then I'm going to try to do some dialogue here. I'm probably going to fuck it up. Oh, well. Mathos, this is the royal fleet. And you're not a smuggler anymore. You're the high captain. Davos, there are several royal fleets at the moment. Mathos, not after tonight. When the sun rises, Stannis will sit on the Iron Throne and you will be his hand. Davos, gods be good. Mathos, God, father, there is only one. And he watches over us. I I really don't have any idea whether I'm doing a better job than Liam Cunningham or Kerr Logan. I, I absolutely know that I'm not. But it's really, really good the way they do their dialogue delivery here. But I'm going to stick with it anyways. Davos asked Mathos if R'hllor is watching over the enemy. And Mathos responds and said, yeah, he watches over everyone. Even the people in King's Landing who are forced to have Joffrey for a sovereign. They all want him dead. Yeah, but Stannis would need to get into King's Landing first before that, and even if they outnumber Joffrey five to one, they're up against a city that has never been taken by force of arms before. And that city is going to look at them not as liberators, but as people who have come to kill and sack them. But Mathos has faith in Valor, Stannis and his captain, which is just about the only awe moment in this entire episode of TV. Then we're over to Tyrion, hanging out with the decidedly non book version of Shae. He's awake as and look looking as if he's been awake the entire night. Shay wakes up and asks Tyrion if he's afraid, and yeah, he's scared because if they lose, he's dead. But he has to fight. Simply no choice in the matter. Shay then straddles Tyrion, and they have off-camera sex. Next, it's Cersei and her sole appearance, thank god, of Grand Maester Pycelle in this episode. Pycelle drones on about his duty and service, but Cersei interrupts him and asks if he's brought what she's requested. He has its essence of the Nightshade, which is used for relaxation at one drop, three drops for deep sleep, and ten drops for, but Cersei knows what ten drops does. She dismisses him as soon as he gives her the vial. And now we're on to one of the early seasons of Game of Thrones most tried and true methods for keeping eyeballs on screens. Gratuitous female nudity. Yeah, baby. Bronn and some Lannister men are singing the Reigns of Casimir with nude sex workers and are drinking. One sex worker by the name of Armeca asks about Bron's nose, and he tells her about how he broke it three times. Once by his mom, once in a fight with older boys, and the third time isn't worth talking about. Sander Clegane then shows up and everyone gets real quiet. Bron offers him a drink and Sander gets all huffy saying that he's bigger than Bron is. Faster too, Bron says. But then the Hound goes for a tried and true method saying that all the singing and fucking and shit is great and all. But Bron's true love is killing, just like Sander's. The two men square up, ready to kill each other, but then the bells start ringing and the men hustle off to war, but not before the, asking for one last drink before the war, which is a really good line. In Tyrion's chambers, Tyrion is dressed by Podrick for war by while Varis state stares out the window. Varys, I've always hated the bells. They ring for horror, a dead city, a city under siege. Tyrion, a wedding? Exactly, Varys says. Varys asks if Padraic is Padraic, and Tyrion teases him that he knows the name of every boy in town. Varys asks what Tyrion's applying, and Tyrion says he's sure Varys knows what he means. You know, the whole like Varas is gay because it's a unique bit is not one of my favorite parts of Game of Thrones. Varas then asks if Tyrion can trust Padraic and he says that he does. So Varas shows Tyrion a map of King's Landing and the tunnel system underneath of the city. These tunnels could be used for escape. Well, Tyrion isn't planning to escape. He's going down with the ship. Sure, says Varas. Sure. But now that they've dispatched with the political, Varas turns to talk of the supernatural, saying Stannis has converted to the Lord of Light and has a red priestess with him. "'Does Tyrion believe in those types of things?' "'Tyrion, blood spells, curses, shape-shifting. "'What do you think?' "'I think you believe in what you see "'and what those who trust have seen,' Varys says. "'You probably don't entirely trust me.' Mm, "'Don't take it personally, Varys. "'I don't entirely trust myself.' "'And Varys says, "'And yet I have seen things and heard things, "'things you have not, things I wish I had not. "'I don't believe I've ever told you how it was cut.' "'No, I don't believe you have,' Tyrion says. "'Varys, one day I will.' But now that the dark arts have given Stannis his army, Varys thinks that Tyrion is the only one who can stop him. And then Podrick hands Tyrion his axe. Out on the water, Mathos thinks the bells signify King's Landing is welcoming Stannis as king. But Davos knows better. He knows that bells aren't signifying surrender. Hmm. He orders the drums to play and then we get the iconic Mathos line. Drums! Really? I forgot how great Kerr Logan is in this episode. Just a great dude. Also pretty young, too. Only 32 years old, as I checked him out on Twitter. Stannis' soldiers move up onto the deck as Stannis watches him passively from another boat. Back in King's Landing at the Red Keep, Tyrion tells Bronn to wait until the fleet is all in the bay. An annoyed Bronn says he knows what, quote-unquote, in means. Bronn asks if Tyrion knows how to use an axe. Yeah, he does. He does. Totally used one once. No, actually, he only watched Jamie use an axe once. Tyrion grabs Bron's hand and in a total bro move. Bronn asks Tyrion not to get killed. Tyrion asks the same of Bronn. He's his friend. Oh, are we friends now, Bronn says. Of course we are. Just because I pay you for your services doesn't diminish our friendship, Tyrion says. Oh, enhances it, really, Bronn replies. Oh, Tyrion says. Enhances. Fancy word for a sellsword. Been spending time with fancy folks. You know, this is a George R. R. Martin written episode by the amount of witty banner that Peter Dinklage gets to work with as Tyrion. Yeah, it's definitely a George episode. Then Shay and Sansa show up to the throne room. Tyrion goes over to them, pretends not to know Shay. Sansa tells Tyrion she's heading to Baker's Holdfast, but first Joffrey wants Sansa to send him off to war. Joffrey then shows up and demands that Sansa kiss his blade. She does, and then Sansa totally owns Joffrey a little bit differently from it happens in the books, but not all that differently. Joffrey says, "'You'll kiss it again when I return and taste my uncle's blood.' "'Will you slay him yourself?' Sansa replies. Joffrey, "'If Sans, if Stannis is a fool enough to come near me, "'so you'll be fighting outside the gates, fighting in the vanguard?' Joffrey, "'A king doesn't discuss his battle plans with stupid girls.' "'I'm sorry, Your Grace. You're right. I'm stupid. "'Of course you'll be in the vanguard. "'They say my brother Rob always goes where the fighting is thickest, "'and he is only a pretender.' Joffrey storms off, and Shae says that some of the men going out to fight aren't coming back, but Sansa knows that Joffrey will return. The Lannisters move up onto the walls of King's Landing, and Joffrey starts whimpering about his fleet not being there. Ah, but they're coming, according to Tyrion. But why aren't they here now, Joffrey says. Tyrion stays silent as Joffrey rages and threatens Tyrion. This back and forth will be a feature of Tyrion and Joffrey's interactions during this entire battle. Back on the bay, Davos sees that there are no ships out there, and Mathos thinks they've caught the Lannisters by surprise, or maybe that the Lannister flee is mutiny. But Davos is a little skeptical of this. Then back to Beggar's keep with Sansa and Shay. Cersei and Tommen arrive as Sansa whispers, wondering why Cersei wants her here. Cersei beckons Sansa over, asks if she still has her period. She does. Then Cersei orders Sansa to drink wine. Sansa notices Sir Illyn Payne and asks why he's here well for protection of course then the gold cloak rolls in and informs cersei about some servants who tried to flee with some stolen gold cups she, cersei orders ellen to take care of him justifying it as treason and a threat to everyone now it's back to the walls the lancers look through the fog jeffrey points out the baratheon fleet on the bay and Tyrion orders archers to their places but he doesn't command them to engage he orders them to stand fast and then a single ship moves towards the baratheon fleet Davos and Mathos watch the ship approach, and Davos orders archers to get ready to engage him. But then everyone notices that the ship is unmanned. Cut right back to the harbor wall, and Halane, that pyromancer that we were introduced to earlier in Season 2, climbs the stairs with a torch. He hands the torch to Tyrion. Cut to the black water. Davos sees that it's wildfire leaking from the back of the ship. He orders everyone to steer clear as Tyrion throws the torch over the wall as a signal to Braun, who shoots a flaming arrow that hits the wildfire and... Kaboom! I don't know. Is that the right way to put it? Kaboom! That sounds kind of like weak. The way this actually comes out on screen. I just literally for the, the for the document, I just put a picture of the wildfire explosion as as my uh as my cue, my my visual cue here. Yeah, it's great. Boom. Um, again, my words can't do it justice. This, though, is one of Game of Thrones' most memorable moments. Mathos gets blown away and Davos gets blown overboard. Stannis gets blown back, but he's far enough away that his ship doesn't get hit with the green explosion. Ships are exploding, men are on fire, people are jumping into the sea on fire. It's utter fucking chaos. And now we get the reactions up on the walls. Tyrion looks sort of terrified and then horrified. Joffrey is pleased and Sander looks like he's in shock. Cut to Stannis Baratheon, who gets up and moves to the deck, and moves to the ropes. Prepare to land. Your grace, the dwarf has played his little trick. The, the, the wildfire, he can only play it once. But we're too far from the gates. The fire, the archers, hundreds will die. Hmm, thousands. Stannis then gets down to the net and turns back to his men. Come with me and take the city. The men cheer to Stannis' look of surprise, it look, kind of looks like to me. And truly, this is the... One of the few, if not the only times, we see a book accurate version of Stannis Baratheon in Game of Thrones. Then we're over to a now very drunk Cersei year, watching Sansa praying in her prayer circle. She asks what Sansa is doing. Praying? For Cersei? Yes. For Joffrey? Uh, but Cersei can see through Sansa's bullshit. And she can also see through the gods' bullshit. The gods aren't merciful. Tywin had caught Cersei praying for her mom's return after she died, and he told her that the gods are not merciful. Sure, he believes in the gods, but Tywin doesn't like them. She demands more wine, and then she forces Sansa to drink a lot more wine. Then we're onto Cersei's internalized misogyny and how she wishes she were born a man instead of being cooped up here, in, instead of being cooped up in here with these women. When Sansa is surprised by this, Cersei retorts that this was expected of her. And Sansa asks, what happens if the city falls? Oh, you like that, wouldn't you, Cersei says. The Red Keep, well, that should hold for a time. Long enough for me to go to the walls and yield to Lord Stannis in person. If there were anyone else outside these gates, I might have hoped for a private audience. But this is Stannis Baratheon. I'd have a better chance of seducing his horse. Cersei then goes on to helpfully tell Sansa that her sex organs are another weapon of hers. But then, after the Red Keep falls, all of these women will be raped, and Sansa will be thankful for her period then. Back to the walls and water. Stannis' rowboats are coming ashore as Tyrion orders the archers to attack them, as Joffrey starts to freak the fuck out. Arrows rain down on Stannis' army, but most of Stannis' troops reach the wall. They start to put ladders up, and Tyrion orders Santa Clegane to attack. Stannis makes it to the wall as Lannis defenders start hurling rocks down on them. Stannis orders some of his men to head over to the mud gate. The Hound then rushes out with last shoes to attack, helpfully yelling that if anyone dies with a clean sword, he's going to rape their fucking corpses. Lovely stuff. In Megger's Holdfast, Cersei talks to Sansa about how, like, Jaime and Cersei looked when they were young, but they were treated differently, with Jaime learning to fight and Cersei learning how to smile, sing, and please. And then she was sold off to a stranger, that is Robert Baratheon. Surprise, Sansa says that Cersei was Robert's queen, just like Sansa will be queen to Joffrey too. Cersei notices Shay and then beckons her over. Shay tries to curtsy in front of the queen, but Cersei tells her it's the worst curtsy she's ever seen. Cersei starts to interrogate Shay, but just before Shay can reveal too much information about herself, a wounded Lancel Lannister enters the room and starts talking about how shit is going south out on the river. Cersei asks for Joffrey and demands that he be brought back. After Lancel leaves, Cersei turns back to Sansa. When I told you about Sir Ellen earlier, I lied. Do you want to hear the truth? You want to know why he's really here? He's here for us. Stannis may take the city, he may take the throne, but he will not take us alive. Now we're back to the battle, and the battle outside the wall is continuing, but then Sander Clegane sees a burning man rushing towards him, but he's brought down by one of Bronze arrows. But now going into full PTSD flashback mode, Sander turns around and walks through the gate as the surviving lancers flee back into the city. Over to Stannis, who orders the ladders brought up. Stannis, in a not-exactly-booked version of Stannis, is the first one up the walls and starts killing dudes upon the walls. Inside the walls itself, Sander Clegane demands a drink. Not water, though. Wine. Fuck that water. Tyrion walks over and starts berating Sander for giving up the fight. Tyrion and Joffrey, who of course appears behind Tyrion, order Sander back into action. But Sander's done with the shit. Fuck the Kingsguard. Fuck the city. Fuck the king. And then he rolls out. More Baratheon soldiers land on the shore. They overturn one raft and bring it forward as another landing party brings up a ram. They start ramming the mud gate. Back to Tyrion and Joffrey. Lancel shows back up with orders from Cersei to come back to the Red Key. Tyrion tells Joffrey to stay and fight, but Joffrey leaves anyways, coward that he is. The surviving Lancelot army starts milling around, wondering what they'll be doing as Padraig Capane heads up the stairs. "'I'll lead the attack,' Tyrion says to himself. "'I'll lead the attack!' Pod, my helmet. Sir you will bear the king's banner. Men, form up. Men, men. They say I'm only half a man. Well, what does that make the lot of you? The only way is out through the gates, and they're at the gates. There's another way. I'm going to show you. We'll come up behind them and fuck them in their asses. Don't fight for your king, and don't fight for his kingdoms. Don't fight for honor. Don't fight for glory. Don't fight for riches, because you won't get any... This is your city Stannis means to sack, that's your gate he's reming, if he gets in, it'll be your houses he burns, your gold he steals, your women he will rape. I don't know about all that Stannis raping and stealing, Stannis' army though, yeah, he's got Sir Clayton fucking Suggs in it, but hey, Tyrion's not exactly being objective. Back at Mager's holdfast, Lancel returns to tell Cersei that the battle is lost. Cersei wants to know where Joffrey is. Well, back in his room, but Lancel wants to escort him back into the battle. Cersei doesn't give a shit what Lancel wants, and when Lancel protests, Cersei then stabs Lancel and walks away with Tommen. Sansa, though, keeps everyone calm, and they sing Gentle Mother, Font of Mercy. But as the women are singing, Shay pulls Sansa away and tells her to get to her chambers before Sir Ellen Payne can hurt her, as Stannis will not hurt her. You know, I never saw before how George really nicely contrasts Tyrion's propaganda with Shay's clear headed view of Stannis, which is. Good on George, and awesome on Shay's part. Go Shay! Yeah. Sansa moves back to her chambers, but inside she reaches for a stuffed animal, and I don't remember if that was the same stuffed animal or one that Ned gave her back in season one. I have to look. Back. I have not seen season one in a minute. She holds it, and then we see that Sandra Clegane is in her room. He's heading out of the city. He might go north. Does Sansa want to come? Uh, come with him? He'll keep her safe, but she's going to have to. But she's going to have to look at him, and he, and to look at him is to look at a killer, just like Stannis. Just like her dad, just like her brothers, and of course, just like her future sons. And then Sansa says, you won't hurt me. No, little bird, I won't hurt you. Sander exits as Sansa stays in her room. Back outside, Tyrion leads his men to attack the Baratheon troops, ramming the gate. They successfully kill the Baratheons and burn their ram, but then Tyrion notices another group of Baratheon troops rushing at them. Another desperate battle ensues. In the middle of it, Tyrion sees her Moore, a Kingsguard knight, and he smiles at him. The knight then approaches and then slices at Tyrion's face, cutting him. But just before he can strike a killing blow, Podrick Payne stabs the knight with a spear. Pod catches Tyrion before he falls to the ground. On the Iron Throne, in the Red Key, Cersei and Tommen sit together as Cersei tries to calm Tommen. She tries to soothe him with a story about a mother lion and her little cub who live in the woods. There were evil things that lived there, like stags. And on rewatch, I really enjoyed this bit of dialogue between Tommen and Cersei here. Because Tommen says, stags aren't evil. They only eat grass. And then Cersei immediately jumps in. And wolves! We flash to Tyrion and Podrick, seeing mounted men riding for them as Cersei keeps telling the story about not being afraid. Cut to Stannis seeing the mounted men. One day all the beasts will bow to you. You will be king. All the stags will bow, all the wolves will bow, the bears in the north, and the foxes of the south, all the birds in the sky, and the beasts in the sea. They will all come to you, little lion, to rest a crown upon your head. The mountain men attack the Brathian soldiers and easily best them as Tyrion starts to lose consciousness. Cut to Cersei offering the vial of poison to Tommen. Cut back to Stannis hooting and hollering for his men to stay and fight. Back to Tyrion passing out. Over to Cersei who is now about just about to offer the vial to Tommen and then the doors crash open. Men come in. One removes his helmet. It's Sir Loras Tyrell? Hmm. And then Lord Tywin Lannister walks through the door. The battle is over. We have won. Cersei dry sobs of relief. Cut to black, and the Nationals' Matt Berninger sings The Reigns of Casimir, which I will spare Emmett as we're recording this one solo tonight without an audience. Anyways, that is the synopsis for Season 2, Episode nine's Blackwater. You know, um, as I was writing the synopsis, uh, I, I definitely felt like I was writing a synopsis for a in a Clash of Kings chapter. Besides some of the theme material from Season 2, I'm not sure you, you could really say that a lot of the material is Especially, I mean, it's based on A Clash of Kings, obviously, but it's especially like almost like scene for scene, very similar to what we see in A Clash of Kings. But it's great. I love it all the same. What did you think of this episode, sir?
1: So we did an episode for our patrons last month on the movie Kingdom of Heaven with Luke from the People's History of the Old Republic podcast. And Kingdom of Heaven, you know, that's the kind of movie later seasons of Game of Thrones feels like to me, for better and for worse. Mm -hmm. A self-conscious epic cramming as much into every frame as possible. This episode, Blackwater Season 2 Episode 9, this is the Jaws or Alien of Game of Thrones, or even like the original Star Wars. It's an absolute maxing out of limited resources to create an experience that feels much bigger than it actually is. The excitement comes from its precision. Nothing can afford to be extraneous, so every line, every edit, every special effect and music cue must serve the whole. I don't think the idea that necessity is the mother of invention—that you have to be, have to you have to be scraping by to do great art—I don't think that always holds true, but I think it really does here.
0: I agree. Yeah, because I mean, will we'll t- I'll talk about the budget towards the end of the episode, but yeah, it it definitely holds for this episode more than anything else for for more reasons we'll unpack. And I think for me, like I wanted to start off by talking a little bit about this term adaptation. We talked a lot about it when we did our episode of Watchmen about how Zack Snyder transposed Alan Moore's Watchmen from page to screen with extraordinary attention to visual detail and literally recreating scenes from the pane onto the silver screen. But as we noted in our episode that we did title Botchman, you know, Watchmen the movie did not replicate the feeling, themes, and meaning of the original comic book quite the opposite. It tended to revel in the violence that Alan Moore was attempting to interrogate. Game of Thrones always had the tagline based on a song of ice and fire by George R. R. Martin in the opening credits, even to the end of season eight. And that always read to me as a nod to this idea of interpretation of the source material in the form of the books, rather than a straight page to screen transposition. But the based on a song of ice and fire tagline has another meaning to me. It's that and it's that some of the visuals will match from the books to the show, but more importantly, the feeling, themes and meaning of the books will be felt in the TV series the same way that we feel it in the books. In my opinion, there's no better place where I can feel a song of ice and fire in a Game of Thrones episode than season 2's Blackwater. It's it's quite different plot-wise from the Blackwater from A Clash of Kings. There's, there's a lot we're going to talk about in this episode where we're going to be like, yeah, this is pretty different from what was in what was in the Sansa Tyrion and Davos chapters, but that's okay because I still feel the same feelings in both mediums, alternatively tense, excited, horrified, angry, sad, even triumphant when and Lancer walks through the gates. I mean, ah, walks through the doors in the red key. How terrible is that for me? That's what good adaptation is. It, of course, helps that George R. R. Martin, Barton, author of A Clash of Kings, was the writer for the script for Blackwater. It kind of helps with the uh, kind of page-to-screen adaptation process.
1: He certainly lends it a certain authenticity to it. You can you can tell right away that there's a, a bridge going on between the text and the show, even as you say, though, the details are different. The opening shots of the episode perfectly capture the opening words of A Clash of Kings Davos 3 that we recently talked about on the main cast. It's all about the rough sailing on Blackwater Bay. The music swells. It's the warrior of light theme that dominates much of this episode. We see Davos's physical ship, a real, you know, manufactured set ship that they're standing on, against a backdrop of fake ones to sell the illusion. That's something they do a lot, quite well throughout this episode. They show you something real against something fake, against something projected, and they expect your mind to fill it in. So now, later on, when we cut back to Davos and Mathos on this ship, we're kind of, our brains will fill in the rest of the fleet behind mm-hmm. them, even if we're not being shown that. Mm-hmm. We also see Stannis. Standing silent like a monolith on his deck. And this is the first big change before we even get any spoken words. In the show, we're going to see Stannis as an active participant in the battle. He's already on the ships. In the books, we don't see him at all during the Battle of Blackwater. And I think that's perfectly fine, as we'll get into in, in later chapters. I think the George is trying to, kind of, trying to make a point there. But I think in a more visual medium for a mass audience, I think this is a really good change. It's more exciting. It reminds you who Stannis is and what the stakes are. But we don't spend time with him right away. First, we spend time with faces of random soldiers preparing for battle. One pukes. The fear is, is setting in. In the book, Davos's thoughts centered on his sons. Here, he has a dialogue scene with one of his sons, Mathos, the composite son in the show. And their opening lines set up the episode. Tides against us versus we have the wind. As in the books, the show's Battle of Blackwater is all about duality. There are parallels between the opposing sides, and there are opposing sides within every individual. Davos recognizes this more than anyone. Mathos is insistent on his rigid, binary way of thinking. There is one true god. We are his servants. We are here to deliver the people from the evil Joffrey. (laughs) Davos argues that the men they're about to fight also think of themselves as the royal fleet. He knows that because he used to escape them for a living. As in the books, Davos's background as a smuggler gives him a different perspective than the younger generation. Davos knows that the people of King's Landing don't necessarily see them as liberators, but as fiery strangers to match their banners. It's a connection to the faith, as in the books, and I think coming back after season 8, it also feels pretty coherent with what happens with Danny, that she comes to King's Landing thinking of herself as a liberator and is shocked to find that the people don't necessarily think <laughs> of her that way. It's a bittersweet homecoming for Davos, a wound his son kind of unknowingly pokes. Davos no lo- is just no longer the same man, as he says, and he fears he's coming to burn it all down, everything, everything he knew when he grew up. Mathos says they're doing all this so Davos can be hand. We are, we are securing our family's power. We are making it so no noble-born families can scorn us ever again. But the irony, as in the books, is that he himself will be sacrificed to that cause.
0: And you know, as, as you were you were talking, you kind of put it all together, like the, the motif that George and David and Dan were going for. And that's, I think like the character of Mathos is really fascinating to me because he, he kind of like strikes me as the dude who thinks that the invasion of Iraq is going to go really, really well. We're just going to roll in, mm-hmm. take out Saddam Hussein, and you will be welcomed as liberators with roses being thrown at us as our vehicles are, are progressing through the streets. That's, that's Mathos Seaworth in, in this episode. That's the type of person that he's representing. And given how... George, at least, I don't know d d necessarily, but I know George at least talked a lot about Iraq when the Iraq war was going on On is not a blog. I have to think that was intentional on George's part, if, if not a little bit subtle, as I'm only realizing it now. But it's, for me, it's like, uh, uh, as I was alluding to earlier, you know, Mathis is, is, in the synopsis, Mathis is a great character in this episode, and I hope the character, Carol Logan, continues to get parts. He's awesome. Part of what makes Mathis so compelling is how he embodies the true believer. He is the John Locke from Lost Man of Faith. Not only is he a... Faithful follower of Allure, he has faith in Stannis and he has faith in his dad. And all of that faith is rewarded with his death? Mathos, man. RIP. And never doubt that as much as George is a disappointed romantic, he's also got a bit of a cynical streak in him, too. Given some of the filming and budgetary constraints for the episode we'll talk about later on, the early focus on the individual soldiers and sailors aboard the ships and below the decks, up on the walls or fighting battles in the mud beneath the walls was how they had to actually stage and film the battle. David Benioff and Dan Weiss talked about how their battle might not seem or be as epic as many battles that were getting filmed in the early 2010s. So they decided to film the battle from the perspective of the grunts, or in their parlance, a soldier fighting in Vietnam or a legionary in the Roman army. This paid dividends for the memorability of the battle. The puke bucket was a brilliant visual reminder representation of the high lords, on the above decks anyways, play their Game of Thrones and the small folk only want to be left behind in peace and they never are. In another sense, Song of Ice and Fire has a cast of noblemen and women for point of view characters, with the small folk coming into prominence when they're mostly when they're bouncing off of noble point of views. Now, the TV adaptation was similar to that in that way in that Mathos and Davos are the ones with speaking parts, and they never do actually give us the names of these soldiers below deck, but we still empathize with their plights. George does a good job of doing that as well with the Battle of the Blackwater and all of the men burning and drowning that Davos witnesses. But again, I think that this is a good way that this was able to be done visually in on the episode of the Blackwater. In other words, what I'm ultimately saying is that what a blessing for Blackwater not to have the budget of the Battle of the Five Armies, part one, part two, part seven. Am I right?
1: Yeah, exactly. That's the The Hobbit movies are a great comparison in terms of how not to do a, a battle adaptation, I think, in comparison to this. And that's a case of simply having having too much money and maybe, you know, I think also just not having a lot of, of creative energy behind the scenes <laughs> with those movies. But there, there's just, there's uh, so much tightness here and so much, yeah, as you said, focus on, 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 not necessarily an un- unheard part of war, but a part of war that the main characters are ignoring, and the, 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 I think the, the writing and the directing shows you that contrast so well. Is, everything about this episode is trying to show you one perspective and then flip the coin. So we, we go from this opening scene, we flip the coin to the other side of the war, to the Lannister side, a different hand of the king, and a different sort of intimacy, sexual instead of paternal. Tyrion and Shay are in bed. They're about to get into character. This is the last moment in the battle that they are permitted to be themselves. Only here does Tyrion feel comfortable talking about the episode's big theme, fear. Stannis embodies his fear of fire and of death. Like Davos, Tyrion is terrified of the battle. So Shay is his Mathos, is the person for whom he's doing all this, the stakes given form and made personal, telling him it's all going to be okay. Shay says she will defend him. Tyrion says he has no choice but to fight. So the power roles are kind of interestingly inverted. The consort is saying she'll defend the lord, and the lord says he actually has less power and choice than her and is obliged to carry out his role. Both on the ships and here behind the walls, people are testing their fidelity to the commitments they have made, wondering if it's all worth it and wondering if they really have a choice is this the dawning of a new day like mathos says or or is it the end of the world like Tyrion says and so you come to this big question that runs through the episode as it, it does in the book chapters of whose prayers are the gods listening to how do you reconcile all these contradictory needs
0: yeah i think that's an excellent point i think you know it's the one that that sansa is, is thinking about and davos is thinking about and Tyrion sort of prays it at one point in the Battle of the Black Horror in the books, but it's, it's all about like the prayers of whether God's actually answering prayers, whether there's actually gods up there who are listening at all. And if they are listening and not answering some prayers, what does it actually say about the people whose prayers are not answered and what does it say about the gods? I think also, too, it was a smart decision to have our first two dialogue scenes for this episode be Davos and then Tyrion. The audience is supposed to sympathize with both Davos, a seemingly good man that we were just introduced to in season two, and Tyrion Lannister, a fan favorite all the way back from season one. We're supposed to feel ambiguity about which side we're rooting for because victory for one side means characters we sympathize with will die or almost die in the case of Davos. Tyrion makes this explicit here with him knowing that Stannis will sack the city if he wins and burn every lancer he can get his hands on such as Tyrion. He is a Lanster after all. But there's another element that George puts into this episode, the dynamic of Tyrion not having a choice. Now we've talked extensively about Tyrion and a clash of kings justifying his actions to prop up a tyrant for a king as him not having a choice. He has to fight for the shitty king because it's his side. Again, no, no, there are no modern Republican party parallels detected <laughs> in this analysis. And then there's Shay. Look, I, I think the I think Sibyl Kakeli gets a bad rep from fans, but I think she's really effective in this episode. And I think the dynamic of Shay falling in love with Tyrion has some emotional heft to it. It's felt in this scene between the two. In A Clash of Kings, Tyrion is shifting between jealousy, lust, and fear that Shay will be found out. And he has an even worse fear that Shay will prove to be another Taisha to him. Game of Thrones condenses that down to Tyrion's lust and fear that she'll leave slash betray him. So when Shay says that she'll protect Tyrion, it reinforces why Tyrion loves Shay in the show. She's loyal to him, and this is what feeds into the bitterness of the betrayal that feels much more powerful in the show than in the books. Of course, the outcome of that betrayal, a little bit less powerful. We'll probably cover that at some point down the road.
1: I think that's a fair distinction to make. I think the Tyrion Shay relationship in the show feels more specific. Whereas in the books, it's v- like deliberately just Tyrion trying to recreate his relationship with a completely different person, namely hmm. Taisha. And so I think while I, I do actually feel emotionally enjoy the Tyrion-Shay scenes more in the show, I feel like the the flow to the outcome is more organic in the books. Whereas yes. as many people have said before, the Tyrion and Shay character outcome in the show is just, you know, that's the, that's the outcome of their relationship in the books. And it doesn't feel necessarily connected. So that's kind mm-hmm. of a representative problem. So now we cut to another pair of people. These scenes are very economical as we start the episode. It saves the budget for when it'll be most effective, and that creates a strong contrast. You know, I, you know, I really enjoy, in a purely visual way, the way, like, some later scenes in Game of Thrones, even simple dialogue scenes are very wonderfully visual done and have great backdrops. Like, there's a Danny Dario scene. Their parting scene in Season 6 is done against, like, a, like I think against a wall of fabric, like green fabric, mm. and the light is coming through, and it's very striking. It's great. But the the problem you run into is that like kind of every scene feels like it's the most visually attractive eye-popping thing and it starts to wear on you. There's no hmm. contrast. And this episode has such strong contrast between the simple dialogue scenes here and how it gets much visually wilder later on. But in terms of the relationship between these these little dialogue scenes, you have all that all that hope and love in the last two scenes with the Baratheon uh, the Baratheon fleet with the Davos and Mathos and then with Tyrion and Shae and all of that hope and love is now drained dry by this little scene. It's Cersei and Pycelle and they have no such respect for each other. It's it's I had forgotten how they're just constantly interrupting each other throughout the scene. They're talking over each other. Pycelle is the underling character in this scene, so to speak, like Mathos or Shay in previous scenes, whereas Davos and Tyrion were the ones in charge in the relationship. But still, you have some sense of reciprocity, right? Mathos honored Davos' hand, that's why we're doing this. Shay wanted to keep Tyrion safe. Pycelle only feigns loyalty to Cersei, and she does not feign any respect for him. (laughs) Even as Pycelle says, oh, I just exist to advise you, he's really putting himself forward to do more than that, to take over for her— because he's not on board with what she has told him to do. What she told him to do is bring poison, of course. And that sets up Cersei's attempt, aborted attempt, to kill Tommen at the end of the episode. But it's also important thematically. It establishes that the danger is inside the walls. The call is coming from inside the house. Davos is right that Stannis' army represents a threat, but so do the Lannisters. There's no way out. Cersei, too, is the stranger, the avatar of death hanging over the whole episode. What all these scenes have in common, as I said, is fear. The, quote, ragged nerves that Pycelle talks about. Cersei Cersei makes reference to how many stairs it is to get up to where she is. And (laughs) that's how Cersei thinks about this. That's what's going to protect her, all those stairs. But will it? As she admits to Sansa, she knows that's not quite the case. So that fear is setting in for her, too.
0: Yeah, absolutely correct. And these pairings of Cersei and and Pycelle and Sandor and Bronn, we can talk about in a moment here, they work towards another level. The one where we're not quite as sympathetic to certain characters on the show, but maybe we still don't want to see them die either. Okay, maybe we're not exactly sympathetic to I just, but I do think like that Julian Glover, the actor who played Picel, does a really awesome job of doing the ham acting that Grand Maester Pycelle does, pretending to be more frail than he actually is with Cersei, that slow droning speech, the shaking hand that he does. He's not taking off his armor around a Lannister, especially so soon after he was imprisoned by another Lannister. That is after Paisal betrayed said Lannister. If you remember that from A Clash of Kings in Season 2, it's when he betrayed Tyrion and gave Cersei his plans for sending Myrcella down to Dorne. For Cersei, this scene works to set the scene for why she is the way she is around Sansa later on. It's also kind of cool because it's how I imagine Cersei's mind state before she heads down to Makers Holdfast in A Clash of Kings, too. Cersei believes that they're going to lose, so she's taking precautions to avoid a fiery end for her and Tommen by Stannis. It also helps us understand why she gets so drunk and starts letting her guard down around Sansa and starts speaking honestly. For the first time in years, it kind of feels like that she's being honest for the first time. If Cersei is going to die, she's going to go out living her truth and she's going to die by her own agency, unlike anything else that's happened in her entire life. The problem for Cersei in this scene is that Cersei is not going to offer that same agency and choice to Tommen. So she has it for herself for the first time, and she immediately yanks it away from—and in that power, she yanks it away from someone else.
1: Exactly right. That's, that not that the Cersei pattern, that she's always thinking about her own independence, but she she can't seem to secure that without stepping on everyone else's freedom? And that's, that's the pattern we see with Cersei's, Cersei in the books, and we will uh, be enjoying that more as we go through her story, especially when she becomes a POV. So while none of the scenes so far in this episode are direct translation of book scenes, they all could have happened in the book universe. Like, you, you can see Cersei kind of intimidating Pycelle in this fashion. Uh, you know, clearly Tyrion and Shay have conversations in bed in the books. You know, Davos, you know, clearly has conversations with his son. So there's, you know, there's there's some links here. Uh, when we get to the, uh, the uh, Sandor and Bronn scene, this scene is more in line with the show's universe, especially in terms of its body sense of humor, shall we say. But there's still emotionally literate character work being done here. Sandor and Braun, as you were saying, are yet another contrasted pair. Both are servants to the Lannister regime, again the dynamic of master and servant throughout these scenes. Both men are preparing to fight and potentially die in battle for their patrons. Yet their outlooks on all this couldn't be more different. Braun believes that the only solution to death is to live as much as you can. Drinking, singing, and fucking, as Sandor says. Bronn really might be right at home in Renly's camp, so he makes for an effective thematic opposition to the zealotry of Team Stannis, to to folks like Mathos. Mathos is is developed early on as a contrast to Salador, and he doesn't really have much of a sense of humor. So Mathos is kind of the anti-Bronn. Bronn is the comedy mask, and then Sandor is the tragedy mask. Bronn even talks about, when he's he's talking to a sex worker, he's talking about uh, suffering for his older brother's sins, which is also what happened to Sandor. But, of course, Sandor, that haunts Sandor, for Braun, this is all a joke. And the sex worker tells him he's got a lovely voice. And, you know, of course, that's Jerome Flynn's real-life lovely voice, because he was a singer in a band. In-universe, it's contrasted with his broken nose. It's suggest again, the, the, the duality of this episode. You have a broken nose, but a beautiful voice. Despite his hardships, Braun holds on to his joie de vivre, and so holds on to some form of beauty in the form of song. Sandor rejects all of this, of course. In Sandor's mind, Bronn is soft. He, Sandor, embraced the true nature of the violent power structures around him, and this makes him more honest and more of a badass. This follows up on Tyrion confessing his fear of death to Shae, and Cersei preparing to kill herself and the innocent boy who depends on her, like you were saying. What does fear do to us, this episode asks? What range of reactions does it evoke, and what does each kind of reaction say about us? All these opposites come together in death, which of course is also the thematic heart of season 8. Everyone sings as the White Walkers close in. And they sing here too. The Reigns of Castamere, of course, the Lannister anthem. It's the contrast to the Warrior of Light. And you you could see this whole episode is like a competition between those two songs. Those are the competing anthems of an episode about duality.
0: Yeah, and that duality is is one again that we feel ambiguous about. Do we want the reigns of Casimir to be playing, or do we want the Warrior of Light to be playing? I I, I don't know. But play me the Stark song, please. Someone play me the Stark song. And and I think like this scene is is kind of a cool scene. Debauchery aside, and and as a caveat, this is something I was reading about. But director Neil Marshall. Reference the debauchery from this scene when he was talking about an HBO executive who urged Neil to show full frontal female nudity as this exec said he represented the quote unquote pervert side of the fandom. Now, I, I think maybe in the most generous reading of this executive, he was kind of imping that David Fincher famous quote about all people are perverts. And that's kind of why he makes his movies. But I've got some doubts about that. When Bronn and Sandor face off, notice that Bronn doesn't protest that he loves killing more than anything else. He's not like, no, 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 that's not me. I'm not about the killing. I want to keep on living. Bronn squares up against Sandor Game because that's his nature. Bronn is proving Sandor right. Bronn also loves killing. That's the sweetest thing for him, too. And both of these killers have been enabled to engage in their love of killing by their noble overlords. I think, you know, as as charming as, as Bronn is and as awesome as Santa Cleggain is in the show and the portrayals by Jerome Flynn and Rory, Rory McCam are really, really good. And in this, in this episode particularly, I, I think George wants us to look at these characters and see them as a bit of an indictment of Tyrion and Cersei and that they've unleashed these people onto the world and allowed them to kill on their behalf. It's similar to what their father Tywin is doing out in the Riverlands with Gregor Clegane and the Mountainsmen as we've talked about in the main cast, and what we do see in season two with the Arya scenes from from Harrenhal. All these people have been enabled to murder, to kill, and they're doing the things that they love. It's an indictment, I think, uh, of of the nobility of Westeros and of the aristocracy and the and the class culture and consciousness that exists in this in these noble people in Westeros.
1: I think you're right. I think that's, you know, we see that with Davos and Mathos reflecting back on Stannis's cause, and we see it here reflecting back on the Lannister cause. And then so we move up the ladder, back to Tyrion, and finally we have three people in a room. Although Padraig <laughs> doesn't have anything to say. For the moment, he's just a pawn for the other two. Tyrion punctures Varus' pomposity right away when Varus is like, oh, Podrick, is it? And Tyrion's like, oh, is it? And that's cute. (laughs) He's pointing out there's no way that Varus doesn't know who the squire to the hand of the king is. Why would Varus ever walk into a room without knowing who everyone (laughs) in that room is? That establishes Varus' sense of omnipotence, but it also, on on rewatch, it supports the theme in the Blackwater of overlooked fighters on the fringe. Hmm. That Varus is calling attention to Podrick just as the author is calling attention to Podrick. The smuggler and his son, the nada knight who's treated like a dog, the silent squire who saves his lord, and the half-man himself, of course. The shining heroes who look the part only ride in at the very end. This is a little different in the show because Stannis himself takes part and Stannis himself does kind of fit the more traditional heroic model, but the theme still holds. Varys picks up this thread after the battle. No, the official stories will not remember you, Tyrion, but we will remember you. As they shift into strategy talking, Varys mentions the Targaryen tunnels under the city. It reminds us that the city has been sacked before, and also connects the Targaryens to all the mentions of fire and to Cersei's heiress like descent. Again, this is, you know, we're well off from season eight here, <laughs> but it, it, it still still establishes the kind of wheel of time sensation that you know, the the, the Targaryens are hi- are hiding behind all of this, even when they're not directly present, because we're fighting in their city, and we're fighting with <laughs> their weapons. Yep. So, you know, ultimately, this is kind of about them, even though it's not directly. Tyrion refuses to run. He f- refuses to make use of these tunnels, saying he has to stay because he's the captain of the ship, and the captain goes down with the ship. And that's a neat parallel to Davos, who is literally the captain of the ship, and both of them are going to go down. <laughs> both Tyrion and Davos are presenting themselves as the reluctant soldier who feels like he really has no choice in all of this and these are questions of service that even someone as cynical as Pycelle is still having to wrestle with what about Varus's motivations and George does an interesting job of weaving in dialogue from a chapter that's not in the Blackwater itself from Tyrion 10 in the Clash of Kings you know when, when Varus talked about being castrated but George does not uh, include Varys's full backstory here. I imagine this was a conversation he probably had with the showrunners, like maybe, oh, we're going to do a version of that later, as they eventually did, yeah. or just there's not room for that in this episode. I think that was a smart decision. It's enough to establish that this isn't just a contest about Lannister versus Baratheon. It's about the dark powers behind the Game of Thrones and whether they're going to be lent legitimacy. Varys says Tyrion is the only one who can stop those powers, since they have chosen Stannis as their champion. Those are the stakes, Varys says. It's <laughs> not about Lannister, it's about stopping those powers. But ironically, and this the same irony holds in the books, Tyrion uses those powers to stop Stannis, unleashing the hell of wildfire on his fleet
0: right it's all about the fire is the the thing that stannis is bringing to king's landing but it's actually the thing that goes out of king's landing to stop stannis from from achieving yes. victory on the black order it's a brilliant bit of paralleling which occurs both in, in books and, and the show and and you know along similar lines about this whole idea about Tyrion and davos as the reluctant warriors I, I really like this this is a bit of a trope but i do like the trope a lot in that it tends to be those characters which are elevated as as sympathetic if not the good guys in, in a story to the audience who's watching or reading the stories. Turi is not necessarily quite so reluctant in, in the books. Uh, and and Davos is, is less reluctant about, he's more reluctant about the tactics that are being used to take King's Landing mm-hmm. as opposed to like the, the cause altogether. Although of course he does have That's doubts true. about the cause as, as we're going to uncover here, unpack here as we already unpacked in part one of Davos three uh, we did last week when we're recording this and we'll unpack further in the second part of Davos three. And of course, much, much more in detail in, in a storm of swords. And like you were talking about Tyrion 10, which I think is a really good place to talk about adaptation. And you were referencing how they probably had a discussion about that and they made the decision to split the conversation up or cut it short and maybe revisit it in later on. And I think like, you know Varys tells Tyrion the story from start to finish from Tyrion 10 and this is the the reason why he's opposed to Stannis Baratheon now of course there are probably a few other reasons that Varys is opposed to Stannis Baratheon in in the books as as we unpacked there in that in that episode but here Varys is putting a halt to the story as and that I think it's a really good character beat even if it was done to conserve screen time to focus on the battle itself because it's Varys showing Tyrion that he's his friend Varys wants Tyrion to survive, and it's a subtle signal to the audience that Tyrion will survive, because you don't tell half of a story to never have it be brought mm-hmm. up again. You actually have to complete the story in order for the narrative to work. And of course, that story does get completed in, I I think it's season three, episode two of Game of Thrones.
1: Yes, it's early on. The, the, they show him the, the sorcerer in a box. That's how they yes. complete the, the story on the show. Um, so from there, the bells ring out from King's Landing. Davos and Mathos disagree about the meaning of that as they have been about everything else. And just as the, as the two sides each have their song, their, their theme in the soundtrack, each has their particular instrument to announce the battle. The Lannister side has their bells, and the Baratheon side has their drums! <laughs> and of course, the, the big beating of the drums, this is what cues the shift away from those intimate kind of one-on-one scenes and into the wild, wide-scale battle. You can literally see that happening as the camera pulls back from the drummer to take in the whole of the Baratheon fleet and army moving into motion. It's, it's, it's so visceral and perfect. It's a great act break for the episode we cut from there to the throne room with its large fires again the parallels between the sides both are ready to burn it all down both are making use of these these over fiery weapons Tyrion sends off braun but now without a friendship moment as you said there there's a, and there's a parallel here to stannis and davos that you have the the the, the noble born man and the the peasant born man finding some some commonality and some way to work together like davos braun has been spending time with fancy folks as he puts it that's a that's a something they have in common Sansa arrives then for some of the most direct adaptation of the book material, as in Sansa 5, in A Clash of Kings, Joffrey summons her like a dog and makes her kiss his sword, and she snaps back by unfavorably comparing him (laughs) to Rob. You have courtesy and deception used as shields for Tyrion as well. He pretends not to know Shay's name, in very much contrast to their intimate scene earlier. Sansa gets in a subtle dig at Tyrion when he asks if she is indeed praying for them. And she, yep, of course I'm praying for you just as hard as I am praying for Joffrey. (laughs) Only when Sansa and Shay are together can they drop the masks and speak the truth because there's no enemies around, no Lannisters around. And that truth for Sansa is that the worst ones always live. This is the conclusion she's drawing, a very sadly cynical one at this moment. Cersei arrives at uh, Magor's holdfast at, at the kind of hall within a hall where the women will stay she arrives with ill in pain signaling our dread from the outset a nice, a nice little uh, clue as to what's going on she also has Tommen with her unlike the books and that's a solid innovation given that there was never really time for a Rosby plot <laughs> where Cersei and Tyrion duel over the presence of Tommen so include Tommen here and that it sets up you know the, the, the terrifying possibility that Cersei will kill him at the end I think that's a very very smart use of your secondary characters you could have left Tommen out of this episode entirely yeah. no one would have like complained about that but very very smart use of him mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Shay then alludes to what I was saying earlier. That uh, when she's talking to Sansa, she says that you know, really Cersei is not the person who's going to keep you safe from the threat. She is the threat. And a rewatch, I noticed the, the shot in which this is being described is very similar to a famous shot in 2001, A Space Odyssey, where two astronauts are talking to each other in the foreground about how Hal, the robot running their ship, has become dangerous. They're going to have to shut him down. In the background, you can see Hal, and he's reading their lips and, and hearing their conversation. Same shot here, where Sansa and Shay are talking at either side of the frame. In the foreground, you can see Cersei watching them in the background. She, Cersei is the killer robot in this scenario, <laughs> is what I'm saying. She, too, as she reveals, is all about putting heads on spikes which is the scenario Tyrion envisions if Stannis takes the city. So it's a similar outcome leading to what you were saying. Who are we supposed to be rooting for in this episode, exactly? Hmm. We get more book-accurate dialogue regarding Sansa's menstruation and Cersei's excuse for why ill Payne is there. Some of this is word for word, so clearly George loves this stuff that he wrote back in Clash of Kings and is is enjoying bringing it back around.
0: I mean, obviously George loves it because... One, it's, it's good stuff, and he loves it because it's self-indulgent. Who wouldn't, as an author of a book, <laughs> love to be able to write a script for an episode of a, of a show that was based on, on said book? You know, so it really helps when you were the author who was writing this stuff years ago, twelve, some 12, 13 years ago before this episode was, was written, and then were able to pull it straight from page to screen. You know, uh, a lot of people talk about the changes to Tyrion and Shay's relationship. But a few people bring up Tyrion and Bronn's relationship. It, it's, it's, it's a bit different in, in season one and season two and beyond. It's pretty changed. These two are actually friends instead of business partners, as we, as we see in the Clash of Kings. And I think this is this is a good change, at least for the show. In terms of the plot, Bronn's role is changed from the books where he's put in charge of driving the oxen that lifts Tyrion's chain up behind the Baratheon fleet when they're all in the Blackwater Rush. Here he's heading out to the battle with a quiver of arrows, with a quiver and arrows to play the key role in setting the wildfire on actual fire. And I think, too, like, you know, if you go back to, I think, episode eight of of season two, Stannis and and Davos have a similar sort of conversation about Mm -hmm. their backgrounds and similar to what you're saying about how. Bronn and Tyrion are paralleling Stannis and Davos in a lot of ways. I think we see that as well, where Stannis starts to like let his guard down and talk about his history and his past. And they were down to eating rats, as he says over and over again. Didn't like the rats. We moved on to the shoe leather and, and, and things like that until like a certain guy brought brought onions and fish and, and salt fish to, to Storm's End. So it cements the an actual friendship between these two characters, similar to the way that the show did it for episode eight, between Stannis and Davos. Again, so much of what we're what we're unpacking for this episode is all about the parallel character plotting that George and d are doing for this episode. And it's just terrific work in all, all together.
1: So we've established our characters, the stakes for each of them, where they're going to be, the mood, the style. We've zoomed out to the big picture with the beating of the drums and the, and the setup in the throne room. And so now with impeccable timing, George blows it all up. <laughs> The wildfire set piece comes together just as well as the book, albeit much differently. Here is where you see both the limitations and the possibilities of the format on this budget. They couldn't do a full on naval battle, and the chain was never set up. So, George narrowed it all down to the single fireship that Davos sees the swordfish ram into in the book. This gets the job done of the wildfire explosion and communicates the agony and horror of it happening without the full scale of the book sequence, and I think that's just perfect adaptation. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, the show format is less restrictive than George's POV structure. As I said in the main cast, he couldn't stay with Tyrion as a POV at the start of the battle because Tyrion simply knows too much about what's going to happen. You have to let it happen first, and then you can check in with Tyrion. On the show, Peter Dinklage can just not say out loud what's going to happen. <laughs> That'll keep the information from us just fine. It also keeps the information from Joffrey, which provides some of the episode's best comedies. He's like, the, you know, the hound, tell the king the ha- that I want this information. And, you know, and then Lancel has to try to dance among all of them to tell them all the information. <laughs> it's a lot of good verbal quips back and forth. This is when Tyrion says, if you cut me in half, I'll be the quarterman. It just doesn't have the same ring to it. <laughs> but the tone shifts expertly to horror regarding the wildfire itself. Without the chain, George uses an arrow from Braun to signal the trap, and this is another great choice. Braun, like Davos, is a low-born man trying to rise high by pleasing his patrons, and he will do anything, including setting his fellow smallfolk ablaze to do it. It's all communicated through visuals, as at the start of the episode, with the guys on the ship and one of them puking, and it's just its so beautifully done here. It's one spark, and it lights up the entire night sky davos watches slowly as the arrow flies overhead he screams for his son to get down but it's too late they are taken out of the battle and out of the episode with blinding force from there we cut to a sea of reaction shots Tyrion looks shocked by what he has done sandor is horrified you can imagine he's flashing back the childhood pyromancer of course is into it Tyrion looks at him in disgust and then sees the same avid expression on joffrey's face And that says it all right there, again, without any need for dialogue. In order to stop the dark arts of Stannis Baratheon, Tyrion has committed his own atrocity, and the king for who he did it loves the sight of it.
0: Yeah, that's such a great point, and I think... Two, it's like you have to fight atrocity with atrocity. Is, is that the way that you actually... Fire connect? with fire,
1: literally. Fire, literally, yeah,
0: exactly. Is that the way that you're supposed to do things? And, you know, we're, we're talking about adaptational choices, and another change between books and show is Tyrion's reaction here. This scene of Tyrion looking on with shock is, emphasizes Tyrion as being the sympathetic and or good guy by having him look on the slaughter with, with horror. He empathizes with the dying men, and we empathize with him in return. The reaction to Tyrion to the wildfire from the of Kings is much different, where where Tyrion thinks, do you hear them shrieking, Stannis? Do you see them burning? This is your work as much as mine. That seems like a really, really big difference. And the stage direction from the script says as much. Tyrion, Podrick, the Hound, and Joffrey watch. Helene smiles. Tyrion is horrified. So remember, George R. R. Martin wrote this episode. So damn, even George was even in on the whitewashing of Tyrion last year in (laughs) the show. Who would have thought? But part of the magic of this scene is, as you were saying, getting multiple reactions from multiple point of views, to to include people who are not even point of views in the book. For example, what about Stannis himself? Only
1: now in the episode does he step forward to speak and act instead of kind of looming in the background of a few shots. Without any recognition of the loss, he leads his men across. For all that the show kind of muddled Stannis' story, this is an example of getting it right. Having George at the helm certainly must have helped, as you were saying earlier. The duality that defines Stannis' character is front and center. On one hand, he is a badass here, leading (laughs) his men like George Washington across the Delaware. I think visually that's clearly what the show is going for. On the other, Stannis is chillingly callous about the (laughs) consequences of this. He will never, ever turn back from his course, as Asha says in A Dance with Dragons, no matter the cost. That leads to probably my favorite exchange in the episode when uh, Imri Florent protests hundreds will die and Stannis shrugs and goes, thousands. (laughs) Stannis cuts past even the most self-serving lie to the brutal truth that he has come to accept. He has already gone too far, and so he will do whatever it takes to win because otherwise none of it was worthwhile. Stephen Delane might uh, not have really known what was going on most of the time (laughs) on Game of Thrones. But he nailed the Stannis here, the swift shrug, the short speech, that omnipresent scowl. It's, it's great stuff.
0: It really, really is. And call me crazy, but the way that Delane does the come with me and take the city line reads like Delane is liv- is delivering a rousing battle speech line for the first time in his entire life in the form <laughs> of Stannis Baratheon. And this is right after Sir Emery Florent. Yes, that Emory Florence voice is cracking, talking about the wildfire and mm-hmm. how hundreds are going to die. And here's the thing, too. It's not even a battle speech. It's a command to his men. He just manages to deliver it with enough panache of a with enough panache of a battle speech. And I think, like, fresh off the heels of George writing A Dance with Dragons, in which Asha's final a Dance with Dragons chapters were among the final ones that George finished for the book in 2011, I have to imagine that George was leaning into one of my favorite lines about Stannis he wrote just a few months before he penned the script for Blackwater. Whatever doubts his lords might nurse, the common men seemed to have faith in their king. Stannis had smashed Mance Raider's wildlings at the wall, and cleaned Asha and her Ironborn out of Deep Wood Mott. He was Robert's brother, victor in a famous sea battle off Faroe Isle, the men who had held Storm's end all, the man who had held Storm's End through all of Robert's rebellion, and he bore a the enchanted blade lightbringer whose glow lit up the night. Emery, I think, works as a stand-in for those doubtful lords that Asha was referencing, while the cheering soldiers are the common men who have faith in their king. Of course, that faith may be misplaced as the men cheering Stannis and following him into battle are actually following him to their deaths. Another fun thing about this battle speech is how it contrasts later on to Tyrion's battle speech, in which Tyrion is appealing and begging for his men to follow his lead in taking the fight to the Baratheons outside of the walls of King's Landing. Stannis doesn't need to convince his soldiers to follow him. His men are just going to cheer him and follow him anyways. They have faith in their king. But, of course, that faith is leading to their aforementioned deaths, either here on the Blackwater or later on in Season 5 at Winterfell.
1: I think you make a great point about that little—it's not—yeah, it's not even a speech. It's actually just an order. It's just kind of delivered (laughs) with the volume of a speech. But it so perfectly expresses Stannis' character because he does have that volume that you need to be a battle commander, right? That's what what Ned said. That's what what Robert has, those lungs of a battle commander, to give the order. But it's just like you can imagine that Robert or Renly would have actually said a thing— Right. But all Stannis says is, "Here's the task, man," which is which <laughs> is it's great. great, which is make which is what makes him great, but also never quite sufficient. And that's of yes. course that's the Stannis Baratheon recipe: very relatable, but never enough. So we get another great pointed edit. We get a great cut from Stannis crossing the river to Dantos the Fool juggling in Cersei's hall, a contrast from the you know, the King at hmm. War to just the the Fool juggling. Cersei is drinking, of course, so we're in Sansa 6 territory now in terms of mapping this onto the books. We've gone from Davos 3 territory to Sansa 6. Cersei mocks Sansa for praying. In some ways, this is similar to the scene earlier with Sandor and Bronn, the question of what we do in the face of death. Should we try to get some enjoyment out of it, or should we embrace the awfulness? But it's also similar to the scene with Davos and Mathos at the beginning. The question of whose side is the righteous side, and who are the gods going to listen to? Who should we be praying to be safe? Everyone? (laughs) Does that really make sense? It can't be both, Cersei says. Someone has to win, and someone has to die, as she told Ned. And she, of course, has taken steps to guarantee that if they lose, they die. The gods have no mercy. That's what Tywin told Cersei. A very different fatherly lesson from the sort Davos tries to give Mathos. Tywin will show up at the end of the episode as a savior yet for all that Tywin you know didn't like the gods as Cersei says he doesn't rebel against them or their power structures he just he he cleaves to it and accepts what he doesn't like about it and Cersei kind of feels the same way she does what's expected of her that's why these women are here despite the fact that she doesn't like them they're here to report well on her so who has true power if Cersei's reputation depends on these women it's the old shadow on a wall dilemma it all breaks down during war Cersei says ...and the songs haven't warned Sansa about what's coming. It's a similar gender dialogue to the books. Cersei bullies Shea along similar lines... ...reinforcing class and gender roles... ...like you do not know how to curtsy properly... ...while saying that this is simply how the world works. Cersei's <laughs> kind of reinforcing those roles... ...while disavowing her own responsibility. Both genders end up being fed to the war machine... ...in different ways in this episode. Both under the surface appearance of glory. We're teaching you how to curtsy... ...we're teaching you how to fight... ...what we're really doing is teaching you how to die... Hmm. Cersei cares only about sparing Joffrey Ironically, she says she doesn't want him to look like a coward Even as she guarantees that he will be Her imperatives as a leader and a mother act counter to each other Because the needs of the war are taking everyone's humanity away Hence Ellen Payne, who seems barely a human at all He's not there to keep them safe, he's there to kill them
0: yeah, he looks like an avatar of death, both in the books uh-huh. and in this episode, for sure. With that hard stare and never, never blinking, it's it's really kind of freaky to look at him. As so I was saying before, though, Cersei really starts letting her guard down here as she gets drunker, and the situation grows bleaker for Team Lannister. She's already prepared for the possibility that she's going to die anyway with the poison, but now she wants to now, but now she wants to live out her life honestly. But again, this is Cersei levels of honesty we're talking about here, not objective, honest living. Cersei scorns the idea of entertaining this flock of hens at Baker's Holdfast, thinking it's what's expected of her. But she hates this job, thinking it's not as important as fighting in the war itself. More than Cersei just out and out saying it, she also demonstrates what she's actually saying by wearing one of the best suits of armor that Simon Brindle, the costume arms supervisor, put together in all of Game of Thrones. I think her costume is fantastic in this episode. Again, George is on the back end on the writing side of, of having written Cersei's point of view chapters for Feast for Crows and a Dance with Dragons when he's writing Cersei here on the Blackwater. So he knows more of who Cersei is in her own mind, more than he probably knew when he was writing A Clash of Kings anyways. The truth is, is that keeping the civilians safe and not panicking is of equal or perhaps even more importance to the war fighting occurring outside of the city. You don't want the people of King's Landing to riot behind you as the, your men are fighting on the walls. That could lead to the, to the gates being opened. That can lead to mutiny. That can lead to the death, death and defeat of your cause. But Cersei but because Cersei has internalized Tywin Lannister's misogyny in viewing women and women's work as of lesser importance than what Jaime was raised to do she hates this role she's being forced into and she starts spitting her actual worldview and truths at Sansa. Meanwhile sansa has the right idea already about what it means to lead innocence in a time of crisis i mean you know it became a meme a little bit after season two but you can mock the prayer circle that sansa does and that's the exact same thing that cersei does mocking her prayer circle if you'd like but people are scared and they cling to things like prayer and religion as a shard of wreckage as the ship sinks it's a way for people to feel that things are going to be okay no, I'm sorry. Freaking out is not actually going to help matters as Sansa finds out in the Blackwater and as Sansa's again is going to find out in season eight of Game of Thrones.
1: Cersei can only afford to be so numb because she doesn't really care if she lives or dies, to <laughs> be honest. Like the only thing she cares about is Joffrey. And when it comes to Joffrey, she's just as irrational as anybody else, as, as, I, hmm. as I already mentioned. And these people are so scared because they're up against such a a fearsome avatar of death in one Stannis Baratheon who arrives on the shore with his men and charges the walls. I'd forgotten the little half compliment Tyrion pays him when he says, oh, he's a serious man, Stannis (laughs) Baratheon. And indeed, Stannis is soon speckled in the blood of his own men. Again, the duality of his character is well established here. He is admirable in his focus. Even Tyrion, his enemy, has to say, oh, he's a serious man. He's not fooling around. But Stannis is clearly terrifying and where that focus, where that seriousness, is leading him. We get the hand-to-hand fighting that we did not get in season one. And it's very viscerally exciting, particularly as Stannis goes over the wall and starts taking Mm -hmm. men on one by one. He's not even wearing a helm. But the, the show is also constantly calling attention in these scenes to the squelch of blood and the pained cries of the wounded. And that's to emphasize the cost of Stannis taking every single step into the city. As as earlier in the episode, fire is the cue to true terror. Fire indicates something beyond the norm, something uh, you know, ex- especially painful and traumatizing is happening. Sandor is again snapped back to childhood at the sight of men on fire. You can tell that just by like this 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 the slow motion of the camera work and Rory McCann's acting the way he's just like walking, he's not even running away from the battle. He's just walking as if he's in a daze. Hmm. This is what leaves him a broken man, unable to fight any longer. Beneath the politics of the war is the cruelty inflicted upon the weak by the strong. Sandor, as it turns out, is not the hard man, the serious man he said he was. Braun is the one we see coming through the battle emotionally and physically untouched. But is that necessarily better? Should we admire Braun for his steady hand, or recoil from a man who can so easily suppress his horror at violence? Once again, we come back to the question of fear. Is fear a weakness that gets us killed? Or is fear a sign that we have held on to some of our humanity? Sandor retreats inside as Stannis's men bring up a ram. The Lannisters seem about to lose it all, so we are in Tyrion 13-14 territory now. Sandor explicitly tells Joffrey off at this point. Unlike the books in which he just kind of slinks away, he doesn't go full fuck the king until he meets up with Arya (laughs) in the Storm of Swords. This is another great adaptational choice by George. It's very dramatic and cathartic to have Sandor just yell it openly on the scene. And then we see Joffrey kind of crumbling in response. He can easily give others orders, but he takes advantage of the opportunity to retreat. He succumbs to his own fears. And there's great acting here from Jack Gleeson as he goes, Oh, what, what does my mother want of me? Is it, is it important? Like he's, he's about to break <laughs> and run, but he still has to try to keep up the pretense that, No, really, Cersei is making me do this. I don't want to leave. Mm-hmm. This is all Cersei's fault. More good acting when Tyrion has to give his big damn hero speech, which is uh, significantly expanded from the books. In the books, it's really only actually a couple lines. I'd forgotten until I reread the chapters for the Blackwater uh, for for our main cast. It's really like literally three sentences that Tyrion (laughs) says in the books. It's it's, it's bigger here. And he openly admits that nothing is going to change for the better because of this. He says, don't fight for rewards or changes in your station because that's just not going to happen. All that's on the line for you guys is to keep your family safe from Stannis' men, from just each other. Nothing to do with me or Stannis. And Tyrion admits, even those other men, even Stannis' men, I don't even hate them. They're brave, Tyrion says, as much as us. And this is probably George's most succinct, expressive writing about war. War, he's indicating, is from above, just a a gargantuan folly that tears us apart from our loved ones. All those intimate scenes at the start of the episode, Davos and Mathos, Tyrion and shay now none of them can happen. That's that's Hmm. kind of the overall 10,000-foot view he's driving for. But for the individuals, for those caught in the war machine, even if they're at the top, they feel powerless to stop it. Because there is no one source of the problem in this episode. That's what you were getting, saying earlier about how it's difficult to know which side to root for. The flip side of that is, is there, other than Joffrey himself, there's no one to easily hate. Even Joffrey, you can't say, oh, if we just got rid of him, this battle wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. Nah, that's still not quite the case. So really, wild courage in the face of death as silly as it might seem, ends up being the best choice available. And George really lets you feel that, even with his own, you know, sentiment that this is all kind of a waste of time. Even in spite of that, he still lets you feel it when Tyrion howls, let's go kill them. Like, you're not detached in that moment. You are right there with him.
0: You're right there with him, and you're cheering alongside of Tyrion. And I love the emotion that's painted across Peter Dinklage's face when he says, let's go kill them. That line is just perfect. It's Mm -hmm. it's part fear, like, oh my God, I'm about to go into battle. But it's also part... Oh my God! They're actually cheering for me, and it's just terrific. On right, that's what Stanis.
1: That's a great point. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's the same parallel. I think, again, the the show and the, the writer, the writer, that's just awesome. Who was is, who is a screamer, screenwriter after all for this? Episode? <laughs> Never heard of him. <laughs> Never heard of him either. Um, but I think like too, like uh, we we're, we're talking a lot about like what happens if the city gets sacked. You know, C- Cersei brings it up to Sansa, and then Tyrion brings it up in this battle speech, saying that your homes are going to get broken into, your gold is going to get stolen, your women are going to get raped, people are going to get killed. And for me, I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking about it in the context of a Clash of Kings and season two, even. And I'm like, aren't these same things happening with the Lannisters in charge of King's Landing? Aren't brothels being broken into and Robert's bastards being dragged out by sure. the gold cloaks and being murdered by them? Isn't rape an, uh, an occurrence which is which is happening under under Cersei and Joffrey's regime? Yeah, the, these are all things that are that are occurring here. Again, we get back to something we were talking about at the end of, uh, of Sansa 5 in our discussion episode, which is that these issues and these problems go way beyond the simply like killing the bad man in the form of Joffrey or killing the less bad man in the form of Stannis in order to make the issues of Westeros, the issues of the world, any better. There has to be systemic, large, long-term change, which may not ever actually be possible. But in the moment... This feels good. This feels mm-hmm. cathartic to us as we're getting into the battle of Tyrion giving this rousing battle speech, and it's beautiful that it's done from from George R. R. Martin's pen, a guy who is mostly a pacifist, a guy who's mostly anti-war, but he brings that like feeling as he's talked about of the banners flapping in the breeze, the battle speeches going, and he, said, and he said before that he wanted to capture both sides of war. He wanted to capture the horror. He wanted to capture the terror and people dying and innocence afflicted by war. But he also wanted to capture the other side of the war, the side the hippies didn't necessarily want him to talk about, namely those things I was mentioning before, the banners flapping, people giving grand speeches, brothers dying in each other's arms, the brotherhood on the on the field of battle. And that's exactly what we get here, both sides of it at this point in the Battle of the Blackwater.
1: As I've said before, I think it's important to show that because if you don't, Otherwise, the conclusion you're going to be left with is that war only happens because of outright obvious avaricious monsters like Joffrey. And that's just, that's satisfying, but it's not Hmm. accurate. And you have to be able to understand how other kinds of people end up going to war or supporting war. And one of the reasons why. Is because it it captures the stir in the human soul and it's that's not unrelated to the reasons we love fantasy i mean as george says yes. fantasy seems to take place in another world away from your drab everyday life and that is how a lot of people all through history have felt about war too mm-hmm. and you can find that you know that, that some there is a part of that, of that that viscerally horrifies me but you have to engage it otherwise yeah. you're not i think really serious about it and i think that's what i think elevates a lot of what george writes and i think you can see that wonderfully here
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So well George structures the flow of the episode a little differently from the books. He he puts Tyrion's speech closer to Sansa's than they end up in the books, and Sansa too gets a big damn hero speech here. But it moves in the opposite direction. Tyrion's speech was about uh, forget the cause, but Sansa's speech is no 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 the cause is going to keep you safe. Instead of ride right out with me like Tyrion said, Sansa's speech is stay put, <laughs> because Sansa and Tyrion are speaking to different audiences with different needs. And yet they have the same goal, everyone keeping it together in the face of death. Sansa even gets to launch into her prayer from the books, if only briefly, before Shae interrupts her. Shae tells her to get out while she can, maintaining her protector role from earlier uh, regarding Tyrion. Again, as she says, the threat to Sansa is actually inside the walls, not outside. These forces that you're pretending will protect people. You know, you need to realize that that's not actually going to happen. <laughs> Shae says that she can't come with Sansa because she says she needs to say goodbye to someone. Ironically, of course, it is Sansa who will say goodbye to someone as the scene proceeds.
0: Mm, Yes, absolutely. And one of the cool things that George does here is he has Sansa lie to the women and the Children Makers Hold Fast. After Cersei Uh absconds the room, after stabbing Lancel. I didn't realize that was actually happening that she actually stabbed Lancel until I was reading the, the script and that says Cersei stabs Lancel. I'm like, oh my god, I didn't realize that was actually happening. I thought she just punched him or he got hit with the arrow. Anyways, um... So Cersei is absconding from the room for Magor's Hold Holdfast, and she's also leaving her responsibilities behind. No, because, and, and Sansa is left behind, and she has to lie on behalf of the Lancers. Because, no, Joffrey is not fighting bravely. No, his knights are not rallying to save the city behind Joffrey. They're rallying to save the city behind Tyrion. It's all lies, but it's comforting lies. The same lie, kinds of lies that Sansa gives to Lollies in the drawbridge to the dry moat from Sansa Five from A Clash of Kings. Here in Blackwater, Sansa is trying to keep the people from panicking and Mager's holdfast, and she chooses lies as her method to do so. And then we have Sansa leading the women and singing three lines from gentle mother, Fanta Mercy, again borrowing from Sansa 5, when she hears the song sung in the Red Keep Sept and joins in the singing. But here Sansa doesn't stick through all the lines of the song, singing for the fr- for her friends and family, the living and the dead. Instead, Shay ushers her away because Shay does not believe in the lies that Sansa is telling. But as Sansa's maid, a plot action that was moved forward into a Clash of Kings territory when it actually occurs in a Storm of Swords when Shay becomes Sansa's maid, she is sworn to protect her lady. To me, this is sad because Shay does not join Sansa up in her room. Shae stays behind with a knife. She will have to fend for herself with her own hidden knife hidden in her boot. She doesn't have the privilege of having a lady Sansa and the of House Stark behind her name. Because she knows that Sansa is afforded a degree of protection by her noble status. And that the reason why Stannis is is not actually going to harm her is not because Stannis is particularly merciful... He's a man notoriously without mercy, but rather that she could be extremely to, valuable to him and as, as, that she can be extremely value to, valuable to him as yet another hostage. So Sansa might be going from a hostage of the Lannisters to a hostage of the Baratheons, but she will be kept alive. That is something that cannot be said for Shay. Shea's life and Shay's life is very much in danger.
1: One way to think about this episode is that it's uh, kind of a series of interactions between people who have gone through terrible things and people who might be about to go through terrible things, hmm. right? Yeah, It's like Davos talking to Mathos and Sansa talking to both Cersei and Sandor, and even Joffrey, who's much less likable than Sansa or Mathos, has also kind of an innocent in that way. He hasn't really gone through anything, but he might be about to. And we get, the, of course, that same dynamic here with Sansa and Sandor. Sandor was waiting for Sansa in her room, as in the books. But their meeting is neither as dramatic Nor as violent as the book version It's, it's more kind of quiet and sad It's more, more kind of an anticlimax. The camera focuses on the fire of the lit candle As Sansa enters And then on her doll Which, yeah, I think, I, I think that might be the one Ned gives her hmm. And, you know, that, that perfectly sums up You know, what connects her to Sandor It's innocence lost You have that doll, the toy of childhood But also the fire, the pain, the anger The loss that, that Sandor suffered And that Sansa has suffered too Unlike in the book, Sandor is explicit that he means to take Sansa home. Not just protect her, but take her home. He mentions the North as a place that, you know, might not be actively on fire. So maybe he'll be happy there. (laughs) Sansa says that she need not leave because, as she said, Stannis will not hurt her. And those are the stakes for her at this point. But Sandor's argument is more in line with what Cersei had to say, albeit from a more caring perspective regarding Sansa herself. He says that, no, Stannis is a killer, just like him just like Ned, and just like her future children. I had forgotten about this line, and it cuts deep. It suggests that Sansa as an individual will ultimately be as powerless as Tyrion feels, as Cersei feels. Even if she raises her kids to be better, even if she is the gentle mother who tries to teach them a a better way, she will watch her children join the cycle of violence just as Davos watched Mathos. Fear is going to reign supreme over the next generation. Because the world is run by killers, Sandor says. We're not the exception, we're the rule. So you better get used to looking at us. And this is a meta statement. It's, it's like how Joffrey's, you know, Joffrey and Sansa's line about how long do I have to look from season one? It, it, gets, it calls attention to us. It's about what it means to play audience to this story. Sandor was telling us, you know, we're, you know, men, men like me are not just, you know, at the periphery of your vision. We're actually on top. If you want to find us in reality, that's where you look and that's, that's you better get used to us. And that positions Sansa as the audience figure, and as the audience to Sandor's performance. And so she analyzes it and arrives at the truth, which is that he won't hurt her. This might be a world built by killers, but Sandor walked away from the fire, and he will not hurt Sansa specifically. The individual might feel powerless before their fear, they might not be able to alter the course of world events... But choices still belong to them in the moment, and in this moment, Sandor chooses mercy, and he he chooses it in part because Sansa has the faith that he will.
0: Yeah, that's that's really well said, man. I I think uh, he, you know, thinking about Sansa in terms of her role in this kind of cycle of of violence, you know, you I got a, a feeling was as you were talking about it about the way that. Ned and Catelyn might have felt as they came out of Robert's Rebellion. Like, we fought in this war so that our children don't have to face mm-hmm. a similar war down the road. And now look at where they're all at. Rob is leading army out in the Westerlands. Arya is missing at, at Harrenhal right now. Sansa herself is here at King's Landing in a city under siege by yet another Baratheon. So the cycle of violence it seems like Luguin is going to go down and keeps circling the drain and hopefully until so there's there's some people left that can actually reverse it. But I think the, the the course and the way to reverse it is through the mercy that Sander chooses for Sansa. That mercy though is is a bit of a contrast from the from the book scene. And it's one and I, I looked through a couple of, of old like Tumblr posts and, and a couple of the like Elio Garcia did a review of this, this episode from 2012, and there's a lot of controversy among certain sectors of the fandom about how this was not replicated from the book version of the scene to the show. Me, personally, I, I quite like the quieter Sandor Clegane choosing mercy here, but I understand why some folks didn't when it aired, and they might not still like that, this scene to this day. Because I think while the plot movements change, the underlying dynamic is the same. Sandor can kill Sansa. His presence covered in blood and drunk is the unstated threat, which is he makes explicit in Sansa's 7 from A Clash of Kings. And the outcome is the same, too. Sander does leave Sansa. And, you know, because I read criticism and sometimes I agree with it, the one I do think is pretty accurate to me is I I do wish they had done the remaining lines of Gentle Mother. You -hmm. would imagine that he did the first three lines in the scene just before. Have her finish the song in in the room with Sansa. That might be a good way of closing that out and to of course then have sander weeping before he left similar to what we see in the books before dropping one more little dove no those are more nits than more than anything else i do think that this scene works well and the consolidation of the plot and character beats we see from sansa 7 do flow really well into this scene itself and it also allows us to focus back on the battle The episode climaxes with
1: Tyrion, unlike the book, which uh, reaches its end with Sansa and Sandor and then with Sansa and Dantos. We get a big infantry clash outside the walls as Stannis continues to fight atop them. The most graphic violence in the episode comes when Stannis cuts off a dude's scalp. And interestingly, we cut right from that to Mandon Moore's attempt on Tyrion's life. And the whole episode really gets tied together here. You have the instability within each side as the Lannisters turn on themselves. You have the chance of glory with Tyrion's big speech contrasted with the muddy reality of his own guard turning on him. The way even the winning side seems to have lost. Tyrion's scar is linked to Sandor's burns. We have both these men who have, who have suffered from the battle and will be living with it for a long time afterwards. Podrick saves the day, but he won't get any credit for it, just like Davos and Sandor... Don't get anything out of this battle except pain. So we've we've gone from that big speech, from the feeling, the glory, to the reality of oh, that you know that's not that's that doesn't necessarily make the battle all about you.
0: Yeah, right. As, as the stirring of the banners, the moving speeches, all have to be contrasted with the blood and shit on the battlefield itself, and in the mud. You have to have both in order to have an honest grappling with warfare. I think the last battle scene in Blackwater is scripted and filmed like a series of like snap reversals because the filming is very sharp and cutting and, and editing out different scenes. You got Stannis' soldiers ramming the gates. He's about to win. Tyrion chops the chains off in the gates and his men rush the mud gate and kill Stannis' men and burn the ram. Tyrion's about to win. Wait, another wave of Stannis' soldiers arrives and the battle gets chaotic, but there are many more Baratheons. Stannis is about to win. Tyrion kills a dude, narrowly avoiding death. Tyrion, winning. But then Mandamore slashes the Tyrion. Tyrion, losing? Podrick spears man face. Tyrion, winning. The fighting is fierce, but the Brathians, again with their superior numbers, seem to be gaining the advantage. You guessed it. Stannis! 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 I did do that one time for this episode. I promise it's the last time. Ah, but then the cavalry arrives. It's Tywin and the Tyrells. Tyrion wins? That's the ultimate reversal, I think, when we're talking about... You have the quick-cut reversals in the scene itself in the last five minutes of the Battle of Blackwater. But the actual reversal comes when Tywin and the Tyrells arrive because in spite of everything Tyrion has done for the Lannisters and in defense of King's Landing he ultimately loses as Tywin Lannisters, his father, purported father, steals his glory all for himself and barely acknowledges that Tyrion was even in the battle. This is something that is done really well in season three, that Tyrion-Tywin dynamic of Tywin just basically like spiting Tyrion every chance he gets, the, every chance he gets, and that's very similar to what we see George doing with Tyrion and Tywin's relationship with dynamic in A Storm of Swords.
1: The narrative of the Battle of Blackwater has fallen apart, with everyone's goals established earlier set on fire. So naturally, we cut to Cersei telling a story, trying to put it all back together. Just as she asked for a story from Shay earlier, she's trying to keep Tommen happy. Her story is deliberately simplistic. We, the lions, are good, and they, the stags, are bad. Tommen points out the problem with that—that that, you know that, that's that stags only eat grass—but also he's living proof of the problem because Tommen is supposedly a stag <laughs> too. That's the cover story, remember, Cersei. The easy binaries Cersei wants to maintain fall apart, and the true danger to him now comes from his own mother, prepared to poison him, so it's not like the story at all. And yet outside, Tywin and the Tyrells do come riding in, like heroes out of the songs. We see someone wearing Renly's stag armor, slaying Stannis's men. It's another division, another split self. The stag outside threatening the lions becomes the savior of the lions, a resurrected mask. Tyrion collapses into dreams as Cersei's story finishes. Stannis is pulled away screaming his dream in ruins, and the stag strides into the throne room. It's Loras, of course. That's George riffing on the reveal that it's Garland Tyrell in the books. (laughs) Tywin, the avatar of punishment for mercy earlier in the episode, now arrives to unknowingly save his grandson's life. Cersei drops the poison to the ground, and Tywin declares that we have won. The episode ends on this perfect mix of optimism and pessimism, fitting an episode about duality. George has said he wants to capture the thrill of combat with the misery, so we have one foot in the stories and one foot in reality. It's a miraculous last-second cavalry-charge rescue, contrasted with the betrayal and wound inflicted on Tyrion, who was the one we were following through the battle. Fear has reached its fever pitch and now has been banished. As Danto says in the books, "'Oh, the batters, darling Sansa, oh, to be a knight!' Yet in both versions, the scars linger. Tyrion himself is like the lion cub in the story Cersei is telling, as the editing in, indicates Cersei is talking about the lone lion cub as the camera shows Tyrion on the battlefield. Hmm. And Tyrion too, like Sandor, will be abandoned by his family. So we get this moment of Lannisters coming together and winning the day, but it's all going to fall apart in the story to come.
0: That's such a, a great way of putting it. And, you know, I did put it together, and I, and I do have a note about this in, in a moment here, but the scene with with Cersei and Tommen with her giving her son the poison. That is a direct homage to kingdom of heaven. The movie that we covered just two sure. months ago, the extended mm-hmm. version where um, queen Sabella is giving her son uh, poison uh, to, in his ear in order to, to kill him just to, to mercy, kill him to spare him the leprosy that his, his uncle had. So I think that's, that's what Neil Marshall was going for. And Neil Marshall has said, as I'll talk about here in a second, was inspired by kingdom of heaven when he did this episode itself. Though this is an episode on the Blackwater, though, but the thing is, is that this this episode flows nicely into the uh, the series, the, excuse me, the season two conclusion, which is episode 10's Valor Morgulis. and it's my favorite opening of any Game of Thrones episode with Tywin entering the Red Keep with his horse promptly shitting everywhere, which is something we see in Sansa eight from A Clash of Kings. The triumph of Tywin marching through the doors of the Red Keep, having won the Battle of the Blackwater, it all turns to shit in the end. All victories are temporary. All glory fades. And with Tywin, he will indeed die shitting too, a potent testament to his legacy. He may have won the Blackwater. He may have sacked King's Landing. He may have defeated Rob Stark, in quotation marks, with the Red Wedding, but his legacy dies in ashes, the same ashes that Stannis does here on the Blackwater. It's just that Tywin's ultimate, ultimate collapse comes at a little bit of a later junction. Stannis is going to limp on for a little bit longer but tywin the lannisters cersei tyrion they all end up losing ultimately even they all end up all they end up all ultimately losing the war even if they win this battle so that about wraps up for the depth section of this episode that was, that was a lot of fun i had a lot of fun doing that it's like doing like a regular not a cast episode on, on these chapters it's, it's so much fun maybe we'll do more of these down the road um so, we normally transition here to talking about foreshadowing and groundwork, but I figure this would be a good spot to talk about some of the behind the scenes aspects of this episode. And because I'm a giant, not a nerd, I decided to do a whole lot of reading and watching of some of the the behind-the-scenes stuff about the Battle of the Blackwater and about this episode of Blackwater in particular. So, in in terms of the episode, Blackwater was Game of Thrones' first battle episode. And it was made in direct response to the filmmaker's inability to secure funding to film the Battle of the Green Fork from Season 1, if you remember that episode... Tyrion gets knocked out from the battle and then wakes up to find that the Lannisters have won and killed 2,000 of Robb Stark's men while Robb Stark is up liberating Riverrun from Jaime Lannister's siege. The original budget for Blackwater was actually $500,000, but David Benioff and Dan Weiss, to their credit, went to HBO and asked for an additional $2 million to get the battle right. They got maybe $2 million, maybe $1.5 million. I've seen different sources on this from HBO after a quote-unquote tense conversation they had with Time Warner executives. Amazingly, the way that they were actually going to do this battle with a budget of $500,000 was, was similar as they did to the Battle of the Green Fork, which is to have the battle occur mostly off screen and mostly from the perspectives of Cersei and Sansa. I think the thing that we got instead was much preferable to, to that, although it would have been interesting to kind of like see that in kind of a stage production in the form of Game of Thrones the Battle of the Blackwater. Moving on to the script, as happened for every season from season one to season four, George R. R. Martin wrote an episode for season two, and the one he wrote for season two was Blackwater. As he stated elsewhere, typically his writing for Game of Thrones episodes would take about a month to complete, which is why he stopped writing after season four, ostensibly to give finishing The Wind's Winter the time he needed. I sure hope those months that have been spent not writing Game of Thrones episodes have contributed to The Wind's Winter coming out eight months before than it would have normally. Anyways, for Blackwater, George began writing the episode shortly after completing all the writing, editing, and sweating of A Dance with Dragons. George first mentioned writing Blackwater on June 1st, 2011, saying, writing the first draft of my script for season episode... Episode 9 of season 2 of the HBO series Game of Thrones Blackwater and Damn But this one is a bitch of an adaptation The original author made the damn battle way too big And too expensive Nice lampshade there George R. Barton Thereafter George talked about how much harder Writing the script was than writing the pointy end Which is the episode they wrote for season 1 Attributing the difficulty to all those damn boats George completed the first draft of the script on July 5th, 2011. An interesting trivia note, this is just one week before the publication of A Dance of Dragons. As he stated in that Not A Blog post, he did expect there would be revisions to the original script. And though I haven't found a line-by-line line-by-line line reading of what the revisions actually were, I did find a couple things that changed from the first edition of the script to what was actually brought onto screen. So, one such revision edit that George talked about in James Hibbard's Fire Can I Kill a Dragon was the Bridge of Ships, stating, "...we had to scale down the Blackwater considerably from the book. They told me right at the start that the Bridge of Boats would be impossible." Another revision to cut was that George originally wrote the three trebuchets and the antler men into the script, but that had to be cut from the episode due to budgetary concerns. He, something interesting that some fans have brought up because everybody asks, like, where is the chain? Was this originally in the script of, of Blackwater? And, and no, it was never in any of the versions of Blackwater, as David Benioff and, tol- and Dan Weiss had told George R. Martin that this was not possible from the get-go. Additionally, the Braun and Sandra Reigns of Casimir scene that we spent a lot of time talking about, that one was actually written by David Benioff and Dan Weiss and not George R. Martin at all. And then finally, D and D rewrote and edited the Cersei Tommen dialogue on the Iron Throne. And George R. R. Martin stated on the Blu-ray release for season two that he liked the rewrite, the rewrite better than what he originally put to screen put put in the script. In terms of like major changes from the script to screen, from what I from what I from looking at what I believe is the script from Game of Thrones, and I say what I believe is the script for Game of Thrones because it's not like it was an actual co- like a photograph copy. It was it was some website that purported to be the script of Blackwater. Uh, There seems to be no major changes from what George and D&D wrote for the episode. However, there is one dialogue change, which was mentioned in the behind the the scene, the behind the episode featurette for season two, episode nine. Where Tyrion tells himself, I'll lead the attack before announcing it to the assembled Lannister men. That was actually improvised by Peter Dinklage on the spot during filming, and they kept it in because it's pretty awesome, pretty moving. And there are some additional stage directions which George R. R. and David Benioff and Dan Weiss had wrote for the actors, which give additional emotional meaning and try and convey what the actress is supposed to be communicating with their faces and body posture for what the character is thinking. And I think by and large, this was accomplished. There is one exception, and that's after the wildfire explosion. Jerome Flynn's stage direction was, Bron watches the explosion. That seems pretty general and not really all that Interesting. But what I think Jerome Flynn, who played Bronn, did was that he improvised the "Holy shit, I had no idea that was going to happen" reaction on the spot, and they kept it in. And they kept it in the episode itself, which I think is excellent.
1: I think that's probably true. Yeah, Jerome Flynn was always good with the improv. You know, when he had when he had good material to work with. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's so funny about about George having to you know deal with the budget restraints for writing this this chapter because the sense you get reading the Battle of Blackwater in the books is this is George R. R. going, ah, at last, here's what we're, what Hollywood would never let me do. Here's the battle scene I could never realize on the screen so I will do to my books instead. And then he had the task of slimming it down or helping to slim it down for the screen version. I think that's wonderful. Like, George, you just, you just made it too cinematic. It became irresistible. Of course, we had to do even a lesser version of it. And yeah, I'm, I'm obviously real glad that they they went with this this full-scale version compared to the more theatrical Circe and Santa just get informed of what's happening I think you know you can get away with that in season one because it's a new show and because neither Green Fork or Whispering Wood are hugely important in themselves so mm-hmm. I think it was fine especially since that was the same episode where Ned Stark got executed so all anyone was ever going to be talking about was Ned Stark getting executed in that episode so that's fine right. But this episode, you know, I think you'd start to lose people if they realized they were never going to see an epic battle on this epic fantasy show. I think that that's supposed to go with the territory. I think you lose more because Stannis is not like a, a, a jokey, fun, fan-favorite character right. on his own regard. So you need, you need a plot mechanism to make that whole storyline worthwhile, and you, you, need, you need to tie in the fates of smaller characters. So I, th- I think it necessitated a, mu- a much larger execution. I'm, gl- I'm glad he was, you know... They were able to, you know, that's the kind of thing you see in a in in action movies where they they end, they end up going hog wild for the budget because otherwise it just like might not exist at all. Hmm. And I, I I think they they managed to get the the right amount of money here, so good
0: for them. Yeah, I agree. I, I think the amount of money they spent on this episode was was appropriate. We'll talk about some of that more towards the very end of this episode, but but yeah, for, for here in season two, we were talking about this in pre-production how like David Banoff and Dan Weiss basically just like, were, we're still in the phase where they like got away with stuff as, as the, mm-hmm. the production team for the showrunners for, for Game of Thrones as opposed to being the folks who are in like season seven season eight territory and just like fuck it up, we'll just do this, you know, because we, we have the money, we're not going to get cancelled, we're not going to cancel the most prestigious premiere drama that's currently being aired in the, around the world right now. So, talking about the directing of this this episode. So, the original director, who I I don't actually don't know who this is. I looked throughout the internet and through Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon to find out who this guy was, but he's never been named to my knowledge. He had to be replaced by Neil Marshall, who had a mere two weeks to prepare to direct the episode. While later directors like Miguel Sapochnik would cite the Battle of Helm's Deep as inspiration, Marshall instead avoided the Two Towers and instead gained inspiration from Vikings. And I I kind of ruined my point earlier, but that's okay. It was an important point. Kingdom of Heaven. Hell yeah, he's one of us. We did an episode on Kingdom of Heaven just uh, two months ago. So go ahead and check that out. George was excited about Neil Marshall directing because his wife Paris had been freaked out by Neil Marshall's 2005 movie, The Descent, and thought he would do a good job providing the horror feeling to the battle that he was attempting to accomplish in A Clash of Kings. Moreover, while the original director had been pulling stuff out of George's script to fit in with that smaller $500,000 budget, Marshall started putting stuff back in, which likely again led to that meeting between D&D and Time Warner execs in order to secure more funding. Talking about the filming a little bit. So, Blackwater was filmed over a month of successive night shots, which is another change from the start of the battle in the Clash of Kings, which, again, starts with the Baratheon fleet making starting their attack in the late afternoon. Now, the main reason this occurred was that filming at night allowed for the fire arrows to come off much more vibrantly. Plus, it was easier to accomplish the VFX in a nighttime setting. In terms of, like, the practical effects versus the, v- the VFX, you know, the ship that was featured, the one that Davos is on, the one that Stannis is later on, there's a it's, if you go to the D, the DVD feature for season 2 from the Blu-ray there's a 30-minute long feature on the making of Blackwater in which the set designers showed off an actual ship that they built against a green screen that ended up serving as a ship for both Stannis and and Davos. And then next to the ship they filled a large tank of water to about 4 feet of water where they we get all those shots of sailors and soldiers jumping into the water when they're on fire. So they used a lot of practical effects against a green screen a lot of times. So it's not simply that Everything is all green, ske- all green screened, all CGI. They used enough practical effects in order to, as you were talking about earlier, set that illusion of you see Davos on a real ship and behind him is all the Baratheon fleet. And so your eyes like, oh, well, that makes sense. There's a real fleet that's behind Davos, even if your brain is being like, yeah, that's obviously CGI. The, con- the conscious part of your brain is thinking that anyways. In terms of the wildfire explosion fire effects. Uh, So they went through several different iterations of the wildfire explosions using 3D models. They showed three in the documentary. Again, it's a good documentary if you you want to really get into this stuff. And the one they decided on uh, had quote unquote fire tentacles added thereafter pretty late in post-production to give it an almost like monster like feel like this thing is like alive and like eating the people that are out on the Blackwater Bay, which I think is a terrific touch on on the VFX parts uh, on the VFX team's part. The, the Again, the wildfire explosion was created mostly by VFX, and the fire and light that the characters aboard the ship see was color corrected to green in post-production. Meanwhile, they used a literal air cannon. <laughs> this is funny. They used a literal air cannon to blow Stephen with Delane back to simulate the shockwave of the wildfire explosion hitting him, which is just hilarious to imagine to see. Well, it's hilarious to see in the documentary, but it's also hilarious to imagine Stephen Delane just like, grinding his teeth being like fuck it fine hit me with the goddamn air cannon because as, as we've talked about several times and you were alluding to earlier Stephen delane was not exactly the biggest fan of, of game of thrones production and really did not like being on the show which made him just about the perfect stannis baratheon despite some of the changes uh, many of the changes they made to the character from from books to show and then finally king's landing in terms of the practical effects, this was all a practical set constructed in Northern Ireland, not Croatia, where most of the exterior shots of King's Landing and at the Red Keep were, were mostly filmed. And the set designers built a section of King's Landing and ended up filming it from different angles to capture different parts of the battle, from the ground battle to the walls to the attack on the Mudgate itself. And one thing that, that Peter Dinklage talked about specifically in the documentary was that, you know, when they were all looking tired and wet and hungry. That wasn't acting. That was them actually feeling that way because they went through, again, like 30 straight days of night shots. So they were all exhausted by the end of it, which ended up giving it a, a feel for uh, – did you ever see that uh, the documentary on The Making of Platoon where Oliver Stone was like uh, – it's worth watching just, just for that because – In the documentary, Charlie Sheen and all those guys are talking about like how they were actually all pissed off and angry at each other before they were like filming the movie platoon. So all of like the actual emotion the characters were conveying on screen was very much mirrored in their real life experiences of of filming in the Philippines for this this Vietnam War movie. The same sort of thing applies here to the Blackwater. All the characters are actually miserable, tired, hungry. And that's because they're filmed 30 days in a row, which is a long, long time to film a show. I love the, the kitchen sink kind of
1: productions like this where you're using every possible trick. You're using practical effects and CGI. You're, you know, you're, you're filming uh, one different set from different angles to make it seem like it's several different locations. That's, that's I guess, I was referring to Jaws and Alien earlier, or a movie like Tremors. I, I love that kind of ingenuity where you can see different levels of craft working together, and that's what you know what 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 filmmaking really is is a combination of a bunch of different kind of art forms. And the 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 job of a director or a showrunner is not to have one specific talent, but be able to orchestrate and coordinate those talents together. And I think you can you can really see that here. And I, I love that little anecdote about about Stannis and you know about Stephen Delane getting getting hit by the by the air cannon. You know, you never look at that that one <laughs> shot the same after that. But again, you get, it, make, it makes you feel the physical impact. So you see the wonderful tableau of, of the green VFX and then the physical impact of an actor actually reacting. And even if you don't know that, your brain picks up on it mm-hmm. and links those things together. And that's that, that's the art of it, and that's wonderful stuff. And yeah, I love... I. You know, the, the the filming at night was great for the fire arrows, but it really is one of those situations where when I read the books now, it's all taking place at night in my head, visually. Yeah. I think because of this episode. Like, yeah, you're, you're right. They say in the book, it starts at late afternoon, but that's not what my head says. My head says, no, this whole thing is in the black of night because that's that episode.
0: Yeah, I, I, was, I was thinking about that, too, and I was reading Tapos 3. I'm like, wait a minute. This doesn't start in the late afternoon. This starts in the middle of the night. I've seen this episode on Game of right. Thrones, but of course, uh, yeah. And I to think, too, like when, when Steven Dillane got blown back by the air cannon and he gets up and he's like really annoyed. He's like, the dwarf has played his trick sort of thing. I think it was actually Stephen Delane being actually annoyed and then channeling that into his acting as, as he's going forward Pure into, method.
1: to battle. <laughs> Pure method, yeah.
0: Steven Delane. He can he can be in any movie that I I've seen him. You you saw him as Jefferson in um in John Adams, did you? Or have you seen yes, John yes, Adams? He's great yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yes, yeah, an excellent, you know. Uh, Anyways, so finally for uh, sound effects and music. So despite us having a a podcast, I I don't think either of us can exactly be called experts when it comes to to sound effects. I mean, you're amazing when it comes to film analysis, and of course, everyone, if you have not already been reading your your letterbox reviews of various films, they should be reading. Uh, Oh, shucks! No, that's not shucks. I'm sweet. I'm saying that I read them and I pull things out of these reviews about movies that I really like. You're one about history of violence, for instance. One of my favorite movies was really, really good and. Um, brought some stuff to my attention that i I really appreciate but for us sound effects are not something that we're necessarily the experts at um so bear that in mind that's it those people who are ostensibly smart on these types of things decided to award game of thrones an emmy for outstanding sound editing for a series for this specific episode so they they must have done something right but i can speak a little bit more to this the music man ramin jawadi kills it with this episode As much as I'm not a massive fan of Game of Thrones' decision to execute the story of Stannis Baratheon in overtly villainous tones, without the interrogation that George R. Martin does of those overt villainous tones and optics that Stannis has in A Song of Ice and Fire, the Baratheon sailing into King's Landing with Rabin's Warrior of Light thumping was just freaking awesome, even as I rewatched it for the 10th or 11th time, this time in preparation for this episode. And, and, And wrong opinions differ, but as a in 2012, as a 28-year-old soy boy, future NautaCast co-host, who was dealing with some real-life problems while watching this episode, I really love the Nationals version of the Reigns of Castamere. That's really, really good. But something I also wanted to shout about Ramin, particularly in the music that he does, is that the music is not just simply the sensory or is not just the sensory experience of an orchestra playing or a band playing. It's also practical in that the music mirrors the practical effects used when Mathos calls for drums because the dude starts banging away at that sick beat on that massive drum that he has there sitting on Davos' ship and that becomes part of the ambient noise as the Baratheons get close to King's Landing. And another th- aspect I love about that too is that the drums are playing, Ramin brings in the the orchestra behind so you start to hear the trumpets playing as a, and they're playing along with the drums as they're they're pounding along. So. That's just excellent to me that you can have the ambient noise contribute to the soundtrack specifically for the episode and contribute to the overall feeling and mood throughout the episode that we're supposed to feel just throughout. So I think that wraps us up for the behind the scenes for Game of Thrones episode, season two episode. I'm going to fuck that up. keep fucking that up. Season, uh, Season two, episode nine's Blackwater. To move into some foreshadowing groundwork here. So... There's a lot of foreshadowing groundwork for specific things for the earlier seasons of Game of Thrones. But the ones that we figured we would like talk about are things that relate specifically to Season 8 of Game of Thrones. Because that's probably the thing that is most people want to, want to hear about. So, as the bells ring to announce Stannis' arrival, Varys has this line. I've always hated the bells. They ring for horror, a dead king, a city under siege. Uh, so, remember who wrote this episode right? It's George R. Martin. So, um, George... Are you trying to tell us something all the way back in 2011 when you wrote the script about the bells and a future event of a certain conqueror, another conqueror coming to King's Landing and what that might signify? I, I don't know.
1: Hard not to giggle at that when you come back to it. Sure. Many people, I think, started pointing that out, started showing clips of this episode when it came to season eight.
0: Yeah, and I think there's other people, too, that were like, wait, the, the bells, though, also never signal surrender, and that was, like, a it's, it's been an issue you're like, well, they might have forgotten that the bells, that Davos says that line that the bells don't signal surrender, but, <sighs> season eight, yeah, go back and list to episodes on those from, from a year and a half ago. They're still good, I think. Uh, finally, for foreshadowing Groundwork, Varus gets out a map with the tunnel network for King's Landing, and this comes to play in season eight when Tyrion is able to infiltrate King's Landing and the Red Keep to meet with Cersei to try and work out a surrender. Now, this is something that I don't know that the showrunners had in mind that Tyrion is going to infiltrate King's Landing at the end of season eight. But I I do think they were like, oh, wait, Tyrion does have a knowledge of the town network. That's going to be the plausible way that we get Tyrion to King's Landing so we can talk with Cersei and attempt to work out a peace deal before Daenerys sacks the city.
1: I think it makes sense even what they knew at that point that Tyrion was going to eventually come back. So that kind of setup work can, can, can only pay off dividends for sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, finally, before we we get out of here today, we hope you all have enjoyed this holiday special episode. So, I I wanted to pose a question to you, sir. So, as as much as both of us love this episode of TV, was this episode the genesis of the so-called spectacle over story aspect of Game of Thrones that fans started to heavily critique with, you know, I I think rightly so in later seasons of the show?
1: That's an interesting question because I as we were saying about this episode it's it's very it's very tight it's very focused it's it's character centric it builds beautifully it, it comes down from its high beautifully so you know i don't think it it bears many of the scars of those later episodes but it's hard to avoid the conclusion that those later episodes were trying to hit the high of blackwater like that's that's what Watchers on the wall especially was just trying to be season four's blackwater and and you can see the same thing I think going on with 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 Hard Home and the Battle of the Bastards and the the Spoils of War from season seven, they were all trying to recreate or react against this episode in some way, and I think it's it's almost it's you know it's almost natural that that would happen that you have a spectacle pulled off with a relatively lower budget and so then you get a bunch more money and so then maybe you kind of kind of lose some of the sense sense hmm. of invention that that made that uh, uh, original episode so great so. I don't think, I don't think this is necessarily the genesis of Spectacle Overstory, but I don't think I, I think that that might have not might have not become a I think that might not have become a thing if it weren't for this episode at the same time. And the same with that like yeah, I was comparing this episode to to, to Jaws earlier, and Jaws I think holds <laughs> up as a movie, but Jaws also inspired a lot of bullshit, and that that, that might have been what happened here too.
0: You know, that's, that's interesting because, you know, George has always talked about how when he wrote A Song of Ice and Fire, he was writing in response to all of this, like, shitty post-Tolkien fantasy of dark lords fighting against sword and sandals heroes. And that ended up being what he was primarily writing against because he wanted to show uh, a fantasy world where it wasn't, was had, had some clear, perhaps not specific, like overt Tolkien references or, or inspirations from Tolkien but did, you know stayed in, stayed in that, that genre of creating a realistic fantasy world and then of course he creates something that ends up creating a lot of spectacle and then the spectacle feeds over to Game of Thrones and then the Blackwater I, I'm with you though and then I think Blackwater in, in and of itself is like you, you you can't you have to look at Blackwater without a a presentist lens you know historically presentist lens of thinking like Because things happen later on, we can't look at Blackwater as it existed in 2011 when they're writing it. Because, you know, the the showrunners really didn't have a sense that they would be really continuing on. You know, every single year, George R.R. Martin would get super excited because he would be like, hey, Game of Thrones has been picked up for a season two. It's been renewed for season two. Hey, it's been renewed for season three, but now it's renewed for season four and on and on and on. So it was like a year to years type of thing for, for a long time before Game of Thrones eventually became inevitable in the cultural zeitgeist and inevitable season renewals until they probably could still be running Game of Thrones today if uh, David Benioff and Dan Weiss had not wanted to go beyond eight seasons, which is a perfectly understandable Reason not to do do something else, but yeah. So so Blackwater to me, I, I think it, it it ended up feeding later on down the road this idea we got to do it bigger and better than the Blackwater. And I think specifically about Watchers on the Wall, which is an episode I love. Uh, I love also directed by Neil Marshall, where there's this really silly scene in the middle of the battle, well towards the end of the battle, where they they drop that massive axe. Do you remember that on the wall? Oh, and yep. The massive mm-hmm. axe just cleaves all the wildlings off of off of the wall. And I'm like, was was that axe just like sitting up there for like, you know, a couple hundred years just waiting to be like dropped and like sweep the wildlings off the wall and it's only like a one-use weapon in a battle. So that to me felt like they were trying to have their own sort of like wildfire explosion there. Sure, sure. And and then I think like, you know, Hardhome, I, I, I really love that episode a lot, but they tried to capture again that kind of Blackwater feel and then farther on you get into the spoils of war and then the battle of... And then the Battle of, of Winterfell in Season 8. And I think the, the Battle of Winterfell in Season 8 specifically was inspired by this one because you have a siege. You have armies that are attempting to take, uh, attempting to take a, a castle by storm as opposed to a city. But the same sort of dynamic applies where you have secret magical weapons and you're fighting against a magical force. You're using fire and ice and... Yeah, as, as we talked about for that episode, that's probably not, that, that remains one of my least favorite episodes from season eight. And I think the reason why is that they tended to value spectacle over story. What I think makes Blackwater special and important is that the story is front and center and the spectacle. Is supporting the story. What I think later happened in later Game of Thrones episodes, and I'm not the first person to, to say this, but I think that the story ended up supporting the spectacle they were building to that big wildfire explosion as opposed to the characters and all the backstory and all of the character interactions and the relationships everyone's having and the plot movements that are being influenced by character actions building to that wildfire explosion. So I think that's to me, is the distinguishment and I think it's the way that I tend, why I view Blackwater so much more favorably than I do any other battle episode and perhaps any other episode of all of game of thrones
1: well said sir i think it's um it's, it's 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 a standard so high that they kept wanting to reach for it but they you know the conditions in which it was made were completely different so that made reaching for it impossible and i think that that's a kind of bittersweet truth
0: when you rewatch game of thrones oh uh, yeah because i i started watching you know i went beyond i, I watched about half of, of valor mcgoa's the season two episode 10's opener and i'm like Sigh. well it it's it, it it this is this is the high point right here. We watched we watched the Blackwater, and I'm not saying it's only only downhill from there, but it, it did have leave me a sense of bittersweet longing for what could have been had um at certain decisions made, which I'm sure we'll cover at some point down the road. You know, we've got lots and lots of months to do patron episodes going forward for the not a cast podcast. So I think that's going to wrap us up for this analysis of season two, episode nine's blackwater finally got the title, right? As always, thank you so much for listening and thank you to all of our patrons for supporting us. Again, this is an episode going out to everyone uh, the, the week after Christmas. So we, we appreciate all of you folks listening all the same, but thank you, especially to all of our patrons, Uh, at every level for for supporting us. And for for so many years now, if you want to become a patron again, check us out at patreon.com forward slash Nauticast ASOAF. And as always, you don't have to check us out at Patreon, but you can always, always leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean. Subscribe to us on YouTube and hit that subscribe and like button. It would, would make us feel very, very good, of course.
1: Can follow us on Twitter at Nauticast or shoot us an email at nauticastaso at Gmail.com. You can find me at poor Quentin
0: on Twitter or at poorquentin.com. And you can find, and you can find me at Brendan Beavish on Twitter, Brendan Beavish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics, Vice and So join us next week as always for the next episode of I was recording this now at Clash Kings Davos 3 Part 2 join us next month for our next patron only episode and thank you so much for another great year with us here at the Not Podcast we love you all Merry Christmas Happy Hanukkah Happy Kwanzaa Happy Holidays I guess but I'm not Barack Obama so thank you all so very very much